love dogs. I love dogs, too. Glad we're all on the same page. Five, four, three, two, one. Welcome to the Sarah Andreco Show. Yeah, thanks so much for joining me this morning. I really appreciate your time. I'm glad we got to get you on the books to talk about what to do in training. So I'm looking forward to hearing from your uh, your side of things, your expertise as to what you do and how you kind of work with some pet parents, especially with all of this kind of information out there circulating on what not to do. I feel like we are constantly telling people, don't do this, don't use that, don't do this method. But I feel like just like in dog training, when you tell the dog, don't do this, don't do that, you you leave them in this free state where they're like, well, what do I do? So I'm glad to have you on this morning to talk about what you can do in various different situations when it comes to not compromising the bond and the trust that you have with your dog, but also tackling some of these pretty severe behavioral issues that, you know, we're used to seeing as behavior professionals in the industry. So thank you so much. Yeah, well, I'm so glad that you invited me on. And you're right. It really, you know, I think you hit the nail on the head because so oftentimes the solution for people with problem behaviors is... Uh, or, or at least coming from a positive perspective is well, what can we teach the dog to do instead, right? And we're trying to focus on re- re- replacing the behavior that is a problem in that context with something that's more productive. And I think that that's probably a good way to approach life as well. Instead of focusing on all of the things that you don't like, it's like, okay, well, how can we make things better? Absolutely. So you don't get stuck. You feel good about moving forward. And I feel the same same goes for our canine companions. So I, I like that um, doing a lot of the yes and showing the dog alternative behaviors is very helpful. And I, I want to bring that point up very briefly as we get into this is that it is important to give them an alternative because they're going to exhibit these behaviors no matter what. They're going to feel the things that they feel. They're going to re- want to react based on their emotional state. So that's not going to go away. Even with behavior modification, they're still going to have those feelings. So we need to find something positive to do with those feelings and need to know, most pet parents really need to know how to transfer that energy. It's not like, okay, we're going to cure this and take it completely away from the dog, especially in cases like, you know, severe fear, anxieties, thunderstorm phobias, things like that. It's more about what can we do with this energy and how can we shift it in a positive way so the dog doesn't feel as stressed or doesn't feel the need to be reactive, that kind of thing. So, um, and you've been lucky enough to be featured on television shows. You have your own dog, um, your own, your own dog podcast. So you get to talk about this stuff kind of frequently. What are some of kind of your go-to methods right off the bat? Client comes to you and they're experiencing, you know, a particular behavior problem. And what, what is your initial approach in beginning that process with them to help them kind of dissect what's going on and look at some, uh, more modern techniques to help them deal with this problem that they're having with their dog. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Obviously, we when we're out and we're helping people with dogs, we come across all different kinds of problems. And there are so many different solutions to pretty much every problem you can think of. And plenty of them are valid. And a lot of it will come down to personal preference and uh, what works best for that individual dog. But you know, just to jump back to what I was saying previously is like that concept in dog training, we call it differential reinforcement, rewarding something different to what the dog is doing is like a common theme across almost every behavior problem. Oftentimes you're really thinking about, well, what can we get the dog doing instead? So for example, you mentioned fear there. I work with a lot of dogs that are aggressive uh, because they're fearful. And even if with something as extreme as that, there's an element of rewarding something different to the aggression. So one really popular strategy for dealing with 
uh, fear aggression is teaching the dog to pay attention to you around the thing that they're scared of, right? Um, and oftentimes when you start going more into behavior problems, which come from an, a place of emotion, then we have to deal with the emotion as well. So there's kind of a, an added layer on top. Because for example, say that you have a dog that's uh, pulling on the lead, right? There's not huge amounts of emotion behind that. Sure, the dog's a bit excited, but they're not scared or or anything, you know, really um, powerful like that. So we can just pay attention to, okay, well, let's reward them for being at our side and that will solve the issue of the dog pulling on the lead. When it gets to aggression, you actually have to deal with the emotional component as well. However, we're really, really lucky with the way that uh, animals learn in that the, the element of differential reinforcement still works, except it kind of works for two reasons. It works for the original reason, which we were speaking about, which is we're rewarding something different to the aggression, but it also works because we're dealing with the emotion because now what we're starting to do is play this game with the dog that is gonna change how they feel about the trigger. So for example, if we're using food and toys as a reward for the dog, and every time they see the trigger, we're rewarding them for paying attention to us again, we're starting to create this really strong positive association. Oh wow, when I see the other dog, when I see the person, we get to play this game, I get rewarded, it's great. And instead of uh, the dog getting to this point where they're trying to drive uh, other dogs or people away from them, they actually get excited and happy about seeing the thing that was previously triggering aggression. And that's a process we call counter conditioning. It's actually changing the dogs, how the dog feels about the, the, the thing that they're reacting to. So it's still really effective. It's just really effective for a, a slightly different reason. Um, but understanding that concept of, or just getting into that mindset of, well, what can I teach my dog to do instead is extremely powerful because you can actually solve a huge amount of uh, problem behaviors, but just by trying to think about all that, you know, what can I get my dog to do? Yeah, I think that's a really powerful thing. And I also think it's it's so incredibly important to work with a professional through some of these things, because I feel that at least from, you know, the, the perspective of some of my clients in the past, they get really frustrated and not understanding how to properly set that up for success. You know, they think, oh, okay, I just feed my dog a bunch of treats. And then I get frustrated that I feel like my dog is only working for food and not for me. So it is pretty systematic. And so I just want to, I want you to touch on that for a minute, if you can too, about it's not as simple as it sounds. It is a complex behavior, even though we're talking about a very simple complex, uh, or I'm sorry, not a simple complex, a, a simple procedure to tackle this issue. It doesn't mean it's necessarily easy, even though it's laid out simply. So, um, you know, talk a little bit too about how a professional assists in that and why it's not just as clear cut as it might sound. I, my dog sees a stimulus that's scary and I give it treats and food reward and I expect that behavior to change. Yeah, I'm so glad you said that. Um, that. That is a really key point. There's a saying which is dog training is simple, but it's not easy. I think it was Bob Bailey yeah. who said that. So hopefully I'm attributing that right. And that's very true. It's like with those, especially when we're talking about uh, that kind of emotion driven behavior, it's, it's really important to have someone guide you through it because there's so much nuance, right? There's there's so much um, being able to read when the dog is comfortable, when they're not comfortable, knowing how to do the setups, even um, having the facilities to be able to bring a dog or a person that is kind of educated on what's going on um, into the into the fray. So there's 
it's it's completely invaluable to have uh, a professional working with you. And I think that I don't know that I've encountered. Do you know I've been working with dogs for a long time, and I can't think of anyone that isn't a professional dog trainer that has seen a dog through um, aggressive behaviour. I mean, maybe there's a bias there um, in that. Obviously, they're calling me in, but I've never heard of anyone resolving aggressive behaviour that isn't a professional and has just kind of read some stuff online and thought, okay, let's give it a shot. At least without, at least not without seriously messing it up, right? Because <laughs> you can actually do a I lot of harm you. as well. You know, yeah. there's, there's a phenomenon um, that we sometimes encounter, which is, um, which is sometimes people will care, call it uh, like a zero dog. And what that means is it's a dog that has learned not to show um, body language that they're getting stressed just before they react or they bite. And that's because oftentimes what people will do is they'll start punishing aggressive behavior and the dog learns, okay, I better not do that stuff. And then you just go from a seemingly normal looking dog to that explosion of aggressive behavior. So you can actually make the situation much more dangerous. There's lots of different things like that where you can uh, accidentally make things worse, even if you're well-meaning. I mean, I know for me personally, that's what happened to me when I first got my first puppy who was very nervous about other dogs and everyone was saying and everything that you read online, you got to go out and socialize your dog. You got to go out and socialize your dog. So that's what I did, except, and, and maybe this seems obvious when I say it, but it wasn't obvious to me at the time. I didn't consider that there's a difference between him having a good time and having a bad time. I just thought that if I get him yeah. around other dogs, that's what I need to do. Um, unfortunately, I was getting him around a lot of dogs that weren't being very nice to him. So I went from having Aww. a nervous dog to having a really aggressive dog. Um, so, you know, th there's lots of mistakes that can be made and having a professional that guides you through it is really, really important. And actually that that's, sometimes can be one of my gripes, Sarah, of, um, of professionals at times. It's really important for any professionals listening to this that you guide people through the process. It's not enough to just write it in a behavior report and expect people to understand what uh, counter conditioning um, or see a systematic desensitization protocol is. Like, I think as, as a dog owner, you're expecting to be guided through the process in person with someone showing you how to do it. That's that's really important. So um, yeah, just as a side note, I can, I you're probably already <laughs> thinking, Sarah, God, this guy doesn't show up. <laughs> <laughs> You're my guest. You're supposed to be the main person talking. Nobody wants to hear me. Well, I'm <laughs> used, used to, to me. <laughs> oh, I know. I was going to say, this, this flip-flop for me being the one asking questions was really bizarre. Half the time I just stare at people like, uh-huh, what else do you got to say? No, just kidding. Um, but I, I, I want to stay in this moment for a minute because I, I'm telling you, client after client after client that I've worked with has said, oh, my dog's had professional training. But doesn't know an obedience cue to save its life. Oh, really? Show me. Okay, show me some of your cues. Sit down, stay heel. And the dog's like, eh, I'm going to go over here and look at this. Or I'm not interested in what you're doing. I'm more interested in the new person or the novel item. And so there's a lot of, um, you know, I, I feel like some dog trainers, some professionals, and it, it seems to be a lot of them are so good at what they do 
that you can make the dog work beautifully for you and you can have all the success while the dog is at a board and train or while you're holding the leash, but then transferring that knowledge and information, I feel like we're falling short significantly because once you hand over the leash again and the owners are like, I don't know what you did or how to replicate that. And then all of that work that went into the dog just kind of falls by the wayside because the dog has its own set of rules. So I work this way for this person and I work this way for that person. And you know, it's one of the reasons I'm always like everyone in the household needs to work with the dog in all areas so that the, the expectations are clear. It's not just based on who has the leash or who doesn't as to which rules I'm going to abide by at this moment in time. So I yeah. definitely think there's a, there's a lack of that transfer of knowledge for owners to be able to understand what to do moving forward. You know, a quick little 20 minute go home session after a six week board and train is not going to get um, more than just the, the top line um, understanding of what's going on across to the owner. And I think owners are sometimes embarrassed or ashamed about it. When you say like socialization, you brought up, you know, you need to socialize your dog. Okay. What does that mean? You know, they, they don't want to say, oh, does that mean they just play with other dogs? Well, no, it also means you work around other dogs and that you work on your focus with your dog when you're with your dog. And then they're not necessarily nose to nose interacting. So it's much deeper than just the overlying term itself. And so when trainers are relaying this information, you need to socialize your dog. You need to reward your dog. What does that mean exactly? They want to hear specifically what that means. And I think oftentimes they're embarrassed to even ask about it. Yeah, I guess what I'm getting at really um, is, you know, there's a term that's kind of cropped over the la- up over the last few years, which like, you know, sounds a little bit derogatory, but like it gets, I hear people kind of whispering about it, you know, and people saying that, you know, there's a group of trainers slash behaviorists, which uh, get called clipboard trainers, right? And what, what that means is these are people that go into people's houses, you've got the clipboard, you've got the full, uh, you write the 20 page behavior report, but you never actually show the person anything, right? Like you, Oh, you've got, yes, your dog has fear aggression. You need to go for a systematic desensitization and, and kind of conditioning process. Um, uh, you know, I'll write you a 20 page report, but never shows anyone anything, explains what those terms mean. Just giving someone, I mean, you know, they might as well have bought a book, right? Like it, it there's no transfer of information, as you said. It's, it's absolutely crucial that that trainers behaviorists whatever term you want to call yourself i know behavior consultant is more popular in america actually you need to actually show people what to do um so i i I just see a lot of that as a as a as someone that works with a lot of aggression i oftentimes i get clients that are frustrated because they've been to we call them behaviorists you call them behavior consultants but they've been see a professional and they've not been, they've not actually, they've never done setups. You know, they've never got out with, there with a stooge dog or a stooge. They've never actually practiced anything, you know, and I, that's, that's a great shame for me. I think that's something that we need to do better at, at actually doing with clients as an industry. Yeah. How do you expect the, the client to be able to put it to practice if they haven't been shown the way to put it into practice? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's really important. And we i do that all the time i make sure you know i might help people out in the beginning but when i leave the session i need to see that the client can do it on their own without any intervention from me because if they can then it's going to be a problem you know in between sessions they're not going to be able to follow through with whatever the plan is 
Right. And also even even things like you, you, you know, you mentioned earlier, you know, the the, <clears throat> the zero dog where there isn't the warning and there's the animal that all of a sudden just snapped out of nowhere. We don't know what happened um, for for owners to understand what the dog is actually communicating. I think this is a highly practiced skill. It's not something that's intuitive to us as humans. We are used to human behavior and reading other humans based on how we think and how we feel. And when it comes to another species, that, that that just doesn't translate well. That doesn't work. So oftentimes owners are missing very subtle signals or subtle cues that need to be pointed out so that they can start to practice and see those in the future with their dogs in different settings. Um, and then just really get to know their dog's personality even more so. Not the personality they want their dog to have or the wishes that they have about how their dog feels or what their dog's emotional state is because of what they want, rather what's actually happening right in front of them. So being able to kind of shave away some of that bias and at the same time kind of open their eyes as to what the dog is actually communicating. And without a professional, I just don't see that, you know, kind of (laughs) coming to fruition on its own, so to speak. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I think, yeah, I, I certainly wouldn't want to be a dog owner trying to work through something like aggression on my own. You know, um, it, there is a, an element of skill there that is is not going to be learnt, um, you know, in a, in a short amount of time. And it, it, there is great benefit to getting someone in to actually show you and be able to walk you through that stuff. And, you know, you were talking about body language there. That's actually one thing that's really, really awesome to do on a session when you start when we start working with dogs that are aggressive, we try to notice the the earliest signs of uh, the dog working up that ladder of aggression. And uh, oftentimes individuals can have certain, uh, almost like poker, you know, like where people have like a poker tail, right? Like you can have like a, a, a dog that has a, a very predictable routine of aggression that maybe someone that isn't a professional wouldn't pick up on. For example, I've worked with a Labrador that had um, dog aggression and every time it would start to get worked up, it would do this thing where it kind of like puffed its cheeks out because it like that, like, and it, almost like a bear, right? They'd never noticed that before. But once you point that out, then they can see it and then they can predict or, or see the reaction coming as opposed to being totally surprised by it. Um, so dogs tend, to, your, dogs tend to have like little... Uh, almost their favorite body language (laughs) that they go to. And if you can identify that, you can make it easier for the client. And they don't necessarily have to learn every piece of dog body language in the world. They just have to learn their dog's pattern, uh, the way that their dog tends to progress. Yeah, and that's important too, because different dogs, just like you mentioned with the lab, they they all have different ways of expressing, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trigger stacking, I'm starting to get a little bit, little bit more worked up here, my anxiety level is going up, my fear level is going up. And so some of them are very subtle signs, and some of them are very independent from dog to dog to dog. So you're very right, like you don't need to learn, you know, universal signs and language, you just really need to focus on your dog as a pet parent anyway. Obviously, if you're a behavior professional or a trainer, you know, you want to you want to be able to see signs across the the whole spectrum of different types of dogs and breeds and that sort of thing. But it makes such a difference to be able to read those cues to begin with, for sure. Yeah, there are things that are only learned for learned for experience. You know, oftentimes I've had it happen many times where the client has noticed something that I I've done. And it's like, oh, yeah, do you know what? I didn't even, like, I do do that. 
And there's a reason I do that. But do you know, what? I hadn't even thought of the fact that I'm doing that because I, because I train dogs every single day and I'm, I mostly work with dogs that are aggressive. Um, you know, you start getting into, um, you start developing behaviors that work well for you. And sometimes like that's part of the, that's part of the difficulty of being a coach is realizing those little things that you do that uh, maybe you don't even think about the fact that you're doing them, right? Um, you know, like, for example, not approaching dogs head on curving instead where you kind of, you approach indirectly um, or standing still when a dog's reacting or whatever, right? Like there's lots of little things that you, you might do, which um, you, you don't think to relay to the client. So that's one of the difficulties of being a coach. Yeah, I, things like unwanted affection too. One of the things that I see clients often doing is petting the dog when the dog wants nothing to do with being pet. It's not reinforcing, it's making the situation worse. And it's one of those things like, why is my dog interacting with you more than they are with me? You know, you're the new person, which, you know, there's a whole side to the, the novel stimulus there. But at the same time, it's like, well, what I'm not doing is things that your dog doesn't want to happen right now. I'm not, you know, kind of invading that bubble. I'm trying to work off what your dog's motivators are, not what I think you know, would make me feel better, right? Kind of removing that human component from it. Yeah, that's a brilliant example. And you, another example where you really see the difference is when you're playing tug with a dog or you're playing with uh, some kind of toy with the dog. There's, there's a, like, it sounds ridiculous, but there is a huge amount of skill that goes into playing with a dog well. And I know <laughs> that sounds really stupid, <laughs> but like, you see this with people that um, are involved with the bite work sports because essentially they're just playing with dogs constantly. Right? Yeah, like, so they get really good at it. But, um, you know, oftentimes when we, I try to encourage people to play tug with their dog, they do things like they get the dog's toy and they just kind of thrust it in the dog's face. And then I'll play with the dog. And, How come he plays with you, but he doesn't play with me? It's because of all those little details that you're doing that... Um, don't make the game interesting for your dog, right? So I, I try to help people with that by trying to keep it really simple. Like there's things you can do to encourage your dog to play with you, like trying to keep the toy moving away from the dog, trying to keep your feet moving. Because if your feet moving, you're actually probably doing the right thing because uh, you're, you're going to be keeping you're going to be keeping the toy uh, moving away. So there's all these. I was teaching someone how to teach their dog to let go during tug the other day. Right. And um, I did it. I well, how I, I do it is I hold the toy as still as possible. The dog gets bored. As soon as they get bored, they're going to let go. I use the word I want to teach them out. And then the game resumes again as a reward. So I explained this to someone. I showed him it and then he was doing it and the dog wasn't letting go. And it was hard for me to notice because it's, it was hard for me to notice why the dog wasn't letting go. And then I realized he's still pulling. Like he's still pulling uh, the toy out of the dog's mouth. So, like, these are the subtleties. Um, the, you know, and as soon as he stopped putting any pressure on, the dog just let go straight away. But, um, you know, th this is this is this is why I love this job. You know, it's, it's just educating people, and uh, you know, this it's just it's a great job. It really is teaching people how to play with dogs. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Never thought there was a need for that, but there is. <laughs> Yeah, it's never boring. Someone said, a sure. client said to me, yeah, a client said to me the other day, like, oh, um, training really is just like structured play. 
And I was like, do you know what? I've never, like, <laughs> t- like I've never, I'm stealing that. Like, I've never heard it explained like that. But it kind of is. Like, you're just kind of playing with the dog, but in a structured way to teach them the things that you want to teach them. That's yeah, like teaching kindergarten. It's the same thing. It's structured play. <laughs> There's an agenda, but we're going to make it look <laughs> like it's just all fun and bubbles and games, right? <laughs> yeah, that's a, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Um, so in, it, you deal with a lot of aggressive cases, and I do as well. And I feel like some people are, are, are pretty intimidated by it, especially with using some of the, the newer modern methods that are out there when it comes to, you know, not using a lot of positive punishment and um, really trying to tap into the relationship with the dog, that mutual beneficial relationship. And that can be really challenging with some aggression cases. Um, and also, you know, just to touch on it, that aggression really isn't a blanket statement. And I feel like it has been for a long time. And luckily we're starting to see this shift to where it's actually very specific and very divided. So let's talk a little bit about some of the aggression cases that you see and some of the methods that you use as far as your approach as to how you're going to try to um, help these dogs and help these owners through it. Sure. I mean, I think by far the two most common reasons for reactivity, I know you know, different people call it different things, uh, reactivity, aggression, you know, all these labels that get applied to it. But the two most common reasons for that kind of barking, lunging on the lead and uh, and whatnot that we don't like are frustration. So dogs that just really want to go and say hello, but they're restra- restricted by the lead and they get frustrated by that. Um, or the, the second most common reason I see is fear. So dogs are actually scared and they're actually trying to get rid of the, the person or the other dog, trying to get them to move away from them. Um, in terms of uh, the methods that I tend to use to get dogs over that, um, predominantly, I've, I, I think uh, the majority of cases we end up using look at me training, uh, which is teaching the dog that we, when they see the trigger to pay attention to you, right? Um, and we start from a distance the dog can handle, and then we gradually get closer and closer and closer over a series of sessions until the dog can be really close to the the thing that is causing the aggression. And then we start to switch from thinking about how far we are from the trigger to thinking about time. How long can the dog spend around the trigger? So for example, uh, say that the trigger is another dog, right? As, As we, once we've broken down to the point where the dog can be next to the other dog, well, then we're gonna do maybe two second sniffs Right, and then we're going to build up to three, four, five until the dog can spend time together. And usually at that point, we can also start working in um, desensitization, which comes for, in my training in the form of parallel walking. And, and what that is, is it is what it sounds like, basically. You, you start parallel to another dog, initially far away, and then you get gradually closer and closer and closer until you're able to walk the other dog uh, with another dog. And again, that might take lots of different, that might take lots of sessions to be able to get there. And it really depends on the dog. Cause sometimes we have dogs that, um, really, really struggle with the reactivity in the beginning, but do really, really well with the parallel walking from the get go. And sometimes we have the opposite. So you just, you, these are things that you tailor towards, towards a dog. The other thing that I've been experimenting a bit more with recently is uh, constructional aggression treatment, which was developed by Kelly Snyder and Jesus Rosales Ruiz. Um, Kelly's got a book called Fierce Dogs Friendly. I, I had her on my podcast recently, um, but I've been experimenting with that a little bit. And that's that's a slightly different approach because instead of using food rewards or, or toys, 
you're actually rewarding the dog with the trigger moving away from them. Um, so it's, it's slightly different. But, you know, we're kind of uh, getting back to what you were saying, Sarah, which is this is why you need a professional. <laughs> because I'm sure dog owners are listening to this and thinking, wow, this is, a, this is like this is a lot of uh, technical terms um, and, and trying to knowing to have the option. Right. Because I've worked with a lot of aggressive dogs. I know that if we're struggling with look at me, we can go to parallel walking. We can go to construction or aggression treatment. There's, I, I know when to switch and and uh, what to do, when to push, when not to push. Um, and you don't know that unless you've worked with a huge amount of dogs. You know, some, there's times, I had a, a case recently where we're about five sessions in. So that's probably about five hours of training. It was a more extreme case. And then uh, at the beginning of that fifth session, the dog was reacting from a distance, but it was it was clear to me that there wasn't emotion behind it anymore. It was much more just frustration. So we weren't dealing with a dog that was really showing much in terms of aggression. They were actually just starting to get frustrated uh, and almost habitually barking, right? So I said to them, bring, bring dog closer, bring dog closer, bring dog closer. And all of a sudden we've gone from having to keep the dog maybe 30, 30 meters away to them standing right next to each other. Now, if you aren't experienced you're going to see the dog reacting 30 meters away and you're not going to want to bring them closer because you're thinking wow my dog's still reacting you could have you know you could have wasted another five hours easily continuing to break down distance right so um yeah that's it's really important to have someone experienced to guide you through it <laughs> yeah definitely well and that expectation factor too when you're talking about parallel walking and, and that that's a gradual process um, if you if you simply say to a client, okay, we're going to do parallel walking, we start at a distance and then we work our, our way in, often that can be perceived as in the same session. Okay, so however long it takes, if we have to do this for an hour, an hour and a half, meanwhile, your dogs are getting overly tired and they're done and they, they're ready for nap time because they've been overstimulated or you're going to push them over their threshold. But I think that's important sure. to understand as well. Something to translate to clients is that just because I give you the 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 scope of what the goal is, what we're going to do, doesn't mean that we're going to do that in one session. In fact, we're going to break it mm. down based on how the dog's progressing or how the dog is responding and then be able to adjust on the fly, kind of like you said with that dog. Because it's, I think it's very, if you're teaching your clients that, okay, this barking, lunging, biting, you know, this this reactivity that your dog is experiencing, we need to give them more distance from from the trigger, essentially. And yeah, they can easily perceive, okay, my dog is still barking and lunging, but is it for the same exact reason? Well, let's let's break this down and think about that. That's something that's very hard for somebody not skilled to, to be able to process and, and make the right decision oh, moving yeah. forward with the dog. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I'm, there's numerous, like, we get cases all the time. You know, I had a case recently where uh, this dog had come from dog rescue and the rescue had said, keep him away from other dogs, he's aggressive with other dogs. And, uh, you know, within kind of like five minutes of the first session, it was obvious that he just wanted to go and see other dogs desperately. Right. But yeah. he was the way he was showing that was by barking and lunging. And unless you're you're really experienced, it looks like aggression. Um, but actually, all he does he just desperately wants to go see other dogs, probably because he's been kept away from other dogs for God knows how many years. Right. right. <laughs> you know, he's just desperately socially deprived. Um, and in which and in a case like that. You take it. You you don't start off with reactivity training or look at me training. 
you go, you you think, well, hang on a minute. This is a dog that has been socially deprived for years, potentially. Let's just start getting him around other dogs. Because if we do that, that'll probably solve most of the problem. And if we need to do any look at me training later, it will be significantly easier because that dog's need to be social has been satisfied. You know, they're not they're not so desperate anymore to go and see every dog. Um, right. So, yeah, the, these are things that come with experience. So in, in your aggression cases, too, I mean, I, I certainly run into this problem a good bit. But how many of the cases that you work with do you see a, a huge gap in the foundational stuff, the skill work at home, that relationship and that bond between, you know, owner and dog? Because I, at least in my experience, and maybe you can enlighten me as to kind of what you do and how you approach to this, it does sometimes impede the reason that they're reaching out. So my dog is reactive unleashed to other dogs, or, you know, you get the rare case of civil aggression, something like that. And in order to work on those problems in particular, there's some foundation that needs to be built. So often what I find is that there's a lot of other things that are going on on the home front that need attention too, just based on their everyday interactions, whether their their enrichment needs for the day, the one-on-one needs for the day, their independent time, whether all those things are being met or not, and building that into kind of your behavior modification plan to where you're not even really touching the reason the client came to you in the first place until you start getting some of this foundational stuff. Or do you feel like you can really kind of um, bridge those things together and work on them simultaneously successfully? When you say like foundational stuff, uh, what do you mean? Do you mean the lifestyle of the dog or do you mean um, like basic obedience style stuff? Both. So everything else aside from aggression. So we'll look at um, nutrition. You know, does the dog have sure. adequate nutrition? Is the dog on any sure. medications? Do we have any medical issues that need to be addressed like pain? You know, pain is a huge factor when it comes to Absolutely. aggression. So have we tackled those things? Also, what does the relationship with the dog and owner look like? If the dog's, if the owner asks the dog to sit, does the dog run off and do what it wants? Or does it actually look at the owner and be like, oh, okay, what are we doing next? You know, is there yeah. any of that that happening to where you have a base to build from that the dog is going to respond to the owner when you're really starting to kind of push the envelope and ask the dog to to respond to the owner. Yeah, no, you're quite right. I mean, I mean, how often do you see a dog that has reactivity but is beautifully trained in other in every other area? It's like very, yeah. very rare, right? Yeah. Um, y- you know, um, I whenever we start a case, we're, we're the first conversation we're always going to have is exactly what you said. You know, what is the medical situation with a dog? You know, is there an explanation for this that might be medical? You know, is the dog in pain? Do they have anything that might be contributing uh, contributing to it? Nutrition is definitely a factor, but nutrition is kind of difficult for us to address in the UK because as behaviorists, we're not really allowed to um, give nutrition advice. So it gets a little bit like dicey. Um, uh, you know, another big one is sleep, right? Like how often is a dog sleeping? Because especially with young dogs, you know, oftentimes we get phone calls from people who's are going for a really rough puppy biting period, um, which obviously every puppy goes through, you know, it is normal, but it's made significantly worse when the dog isn't sleeping enough. And a lot of people don't realize that puppies are supposed to sleep kind of. 16 well probably more than that more like 18 20 hours a day and adult dogs are are supposed to sleep uh, more like uh, 14 16 hours so we're talking long periods of the day the dogs should be sleeping um 
There are other environmental factors as well, though. Here's like a classic one, Sarah, would be maybe we have a reactive dog and, you know, they're reactive on the walk, but at home they spend the entire day barking at people through the window. It's like, mm. well, that's really not going to help the training that we're trying to do, <laughs> right? Because your dog's right. getting worked up. They're, re- they're, they're learning that if they bark, the person uh, moves out of eyesight. So these are things that, yeah, we need to think about first. And usually that is, uh, an, that's all contained within that initial com- conversation. Um, although there is some prioritization that has to take place. You know, if someone has um, a dog that's, if someone is pulling their hair out because they have really bad reactivity towards uh, other dogs or people, then um, we're not going to spend huge amounts of time working on, like, you know, sits and stays, right? Because that's not this person's priority. But hopefully what we can do is get them um, get them making some quick progress on the reactivity. And then oftentimes what we will do, especially recently, is uh, if we can get them enthusiastic about training, then we can push them to more towards the the fun stuff and the basic stuff. Um, and, and for us, that comes in the form of classes, you know, so maybe we can get them interested in scent work classes, or maybe we can get them interested in uh, just kind of a general uh, pet obedience class. Um, so yeah, there is a, a sense of prioritization, but I do I do see what you're saying. You know, I, for me, it's it's part of the bigger mission, you know. It's it's not really just about solving reactivity. Kind of, you know, my job, like formally, is to help people solve the problems that they're having with their pets. But the underlying mission really is, hey, how can we get people enthusiastic about doing stuff with their dogs, right? I actually don't really care too much about what that stuff is. Like, I just want people to do more with their dogs. I don't care if they're doing scent work or agility or fly ball or anything like that. I just want to encourage people to do more with their dogs. So um, that's that's an underlying uh, mission. So hopefully these things like um, aggression and uh, pr- the problem solving that we do as much as possible, we try to make that an entry point. Like, let's solve this problem but hey, let's also do some fun training. Or this, maybe we can get your, your dog uh, into scent work and stuff like that. Because that's so helpful for the do- the relationship between the dog and the person and that dog's whole lifestyle. You were talking about enrichment before, right? Like just enriching that dog's life. Um, that's, that's really important for us. Well, I love that you bring that up because that really changes the experience for the client, the relationship with their dog. Oftentimes when, at least in my experience, when they come to you, they're frustrated and that bond with their dog is starting to, you know, feel a bit tattered because of it. And so there's, there's this kind of, I'm at the end of my rope. Should I give my dog up? And so you see the relationship really start to degrade. And so if you can bring back that excitement and that reason that you got the dog in the first place and you know what kind of activities can I do with my dog he's not just a fixture in the house that you know lays around while I work or does whatever and I feed him occasionally but how can I be active with this companion he's supposed to be a companion um, and really build that relationship back up uh, by not just addressing the problem that I'm having with the dog but also by changing my life to involve the dog and have that benefit me in the long run as well so I, I, I love your your underlying agenda that's perfect <laughs> yeah it's like I, I'm sure that lots of different industries have the same thing it's like you know there's a lot of people out there that want to lose weight right and 
and uh you know maybe if you're a personal trainer you want to help people lose weight but then eventually at some point you want it to start becoming a lifestyle right like it's not just about losing 10 or 20 pounds like it's about how like leading a healthy lifestyle and it's kind of the same thing with dogs where it's like it's you know sure i help you solve the problems that you're having with your dog but at some point it would be um hopefully well hopefully like i'm not going to drag you into it right like you know it's it's your choice but i'm hopefully through going through this process we can get you kind of enthusiastic enough about dog training that you will want to do more stuff with your dog especially once you've solved like the reactivity issue and you're not dreading going on a walk anymore right like because right. You're, you're quite right. I mean, I know personally, I get phone calls and emails all of the time from people that are, uh, they actually, like I had a phone call today from someone that felt guilty about the fact that they don't like walking their dog, right? And it's like, yeah, you know, that's really, really common. And, and people get to the point where, like, the ugly truth is people get to the point where they actually don't like their dogs. Like, yes. you get to a point where they actually resent their dogs. Most people don't want to admit that, but when your dog is uh, like has all these behavior problems, you feel guilty if you don't walk them. But if you do walk them, it's incredibly stressful. Um, or, and, and you know, a lot of dogs have problems in the house as well, and then that's even worse because you have to live with it constantly. So um, you know, problem prevention is is quite important. Uh, but then hopefully we can get to a point where you can actually start enjoying your dog, right? And because yeah. most people get a dog because they want a best friend like they want what they see on tv which is like lassie and like you know i want this dog that's going to be like my best friend and like go everywhere with me and like we can do it's going to be cool you know um and then they get a dog and unfortunately for whatever reason they start developing issues and then that dream kind of fades into like you know you completely forget why you even got a dog in the first place Right. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I, I find um, my theory on this is that one of the main problems, one of the main factors to some of this breakdown is that people are social and want to go out with their dogs. But there's such a, um, a fail when it comes to leash skills. I don't and I don't understand why a, a nice, easy, loose leash walk is so incredibly difficult. I don't know if it's a history of doing things the wrong way where, you know, the old way was we just, you, you tug and you pull and you, you know, just correct the entire time until the dog figures it out, which we know is not a successful way to do things if that's just stuck. And so people get frustrated with that. But I, I do see that just basic, simple leash skills tends to be a huge problem and can contribute to things like reactivity too. Cause if you're miscommunicating through the leash, obviously you can kind of spring load that a bit too, but um, why do you think, why do you think leash skills are one of the more, if you agree with that, why do you think sure. they're, it's one of the more difficult things? Cause I think it's a point of contention for a lot of dog owners that want to be able to go places with their dogs. Yeah. I think it's two reasons. You know, I think, um, uh, firstly, I do think lead walking, uh, loose lead walking is, is quite hard. Like for dog owners, because you have to, there's a level of consistency that has to be had, right? Um, mm-hmm. Where people tend to make the mistake with lead walking is, well, sometimes I can be bothered to do the training and sometimes I can't be bothered to do it. And then the dog just ends up totally confused about what they're supposed to be doing and no, yes. we never make any progress. The way to avoid that is to use different pieces of equipment. So for example, if I connect the lead to the collar, then maybe we're doing some lead walking training. If I connect it to the harness, then I'm just going 
on a walk because I just need to get this done. Right. And then eventually we transitioned to the piece of equipment that we trained them on. And by the way, I'm not saying collar or harness or whatever. I'm what you choose, whatever piece <laughs> of equipment. Um, that's just an example. Um, and then the other. You're allowed to have reason, your opinion on that. That's OK. <laughs> well, I, I, my opinion is harnesses for the majority of dogs, I would say. There are exceptions. Um, but but what I mean is people can choose their own preference for piece of equipment. The dog doesn't really care in terms of how that they make that association for training. But the other reason I was going to say is just a lack of education about how to train your dog to walk nicely on the lead. Like, I can't, I see so many people that um, still do the old stop start technique, the old red light, green light. And I know there's dog trainers that still mm -hmm. teach that. And um, mm -hmm. that's probably the most horrendously inefficient way to teach a dog not to pull on the lead there is out there. Like, you're relying on, firstly, you're relying on you stopping being a punishment for the dog. And you're relying on your dog figuring out that if they pull, you're going to stop and they need to go back and where they need to be in relation to you. It's just, it's so inefficient. It's unbelievable. I mean, that and the lead correction technique you were explaining, both of those are just horribly mm -hmm. inefficient, really inefficient ways of training dogs to pull on lead, uh, to not pull on lead. Um I, I, so I don't think there's a huge amount of good information. I haven't seen a huge amount of good information on how to teach dogs to loosely walk. I've kind of got my own way of doing it from over the years. But the closest or the best tutorial I've seen out there online is um, by, I'm probably going to pronounce her name wrong, but it's Bina Lunza. And she has a uh, YouTube video called Help My Dog Pools. I think, it's, I think that's it. Um, which is the best tutorial I've found online for free. Um, but there's just so many crap techniques out there. It's just unbelievable. <laughs> and But like to, to say, a, to, like, here's a bit of a horrible story though, Sarah. My brother just got a dog and he asked me to meet up with him to show him how to train his new dog. And when I met him, yeah. he was, he had his dog on a harness and he's doing all these leash corrections and, um, Eventually, I'm so used to just coaching people that do all this kind of stuff that I generally don't bring it up straight away. But after a few minutes, he goes to me, like, Nick, are we allowed to swear on this podcast, by the way, Sarah? Yep. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. He says to this me, one's not uh, made for kids. All professional. <laughs> okay. He says to me, like, Nick, should I be doing this? Because I feel like a dick. Like, I feel like I'm being a dick when I'm, like, giving my dog corrections <laughs> all the time. And uh, I was like, I was like, well, why are you doing it? And he's like, well, I'm trying to stop him from pulling. Um, and here's the horrible bit. And he goes, and I remember you used to always do this. Oh. Like when <laughs> I thought this was what you did because I remember you used to always do the leash corrections yeah. with our first dog. So, like. You know, it's kind of it was kind of a bit sad, really, because like I've come a long way since then. But that was what he remembered. Um, oh my goodness! Yeah, but... we all have. Don't worry, we all have those moments. <laughs> <laughs> I have some pretty embarrassing ones myself, where I'm like, I did do that before. Yep, mm -hmm, I yep, I've done that. Yeah, <laughs> that's when he he's remembering when I got my first dog, and you know, I used to do so much wrong with him um i know you wanted to talk about tv dog training at some point sarah and it's like you know my first influence was season milan the dog whisperer uh i went mad on that show like was like a super fan 
And then, uh, yeah. you know, and then I was kind of surrounded with actually, um, even though I wasn't interested in gun dog training, like all the people that I kind of connected with were like really old school gun dog trainers. So that was mm. where I was told to do it. And um, regardless of your viewpoint on like whether you want to, um, you know, like the trendy term now is like balance, whether you want to be a balanced trainer and use punishment in your training or like. Uh, or painful punishment in your training, I should say. Um, regardless of your viewpoint on that, leash corrections to teach lead walking are like horribly inefficient. It's up there with, I see people online, Sarah, this just drives me, like I have no idea what these people are doing. Trying to teach dogs to go to a, go onto a platform with an electric collar. It's like, that's the yeah. stupidest thing you could like. Beyond, like, forget ethics. Let's take ethics out of the question, right? Like, no matter what your ethics are, it's just a stupid way of doing it. Because you can teach a dog to get onto a platform in, like, two minutes with uh, oh, yeah, with easily. reinforcement. You know, and it's the same thing with lead yeah. walking. When you have methods, when you have lead... There aren't many lead or Online, we're not seeing a lot of lead walking methods that are reinforcement-based, but the ones that are reinforcement-based are far more effective like mm. regardless of your viewpoint on punishment or anything like that they're just more effective because it's really hard for the dog to understand the concept of they have to be next to you um i yes. guess like i noticed you use the word loose leash walking sarah so i'd be interested in your opinion on this because i always find it much easier to teach the dog to walk to your side um than the concept of a loose leash. Um, yeah, I can. Com I completely agree with that. And I usually start with a heel, and then I let it progress from there. Um, but kind of my rule of thumb is that the dog. It, it, honestly, it totally depends on what the goals of the owners are, right? Most of the clients that I deal with aren't looking for that showmanship, tight, super focused, you know, yeah. heel. That's perfect, and that nose yeah. never moves past the knee. So for me, if that's your goal, okay, great. I can teach that too. But I do start with the heel because I always want that to be a default for the dog. So if the dog's ever confused about whether it's in the right position or not, I like them to default to that side heel position or, or side on the right side, depending on what the owner wants. Um, but when it comes to a loose, loose leash walk, at least for me, I my rule when I'm walking with my dog, if they're not in a heel with me specific, you know, under specific direction is that you can gaze about, you can sniff, you can kind of do your thing as long as there's not tension on that lead. So I like to teach my dogs a lack of tension means we're all good, right? Mm -hmm. um, and anytime there is tension, I want it to be as quick as possible so that they don't become conditioned or numbed to that tension, so to speak. And then you kind of get in that tugging war back and forth with the dog. So my definition personally, just my opinion of loose leash walk is that there's just not any tension. Doesn't sure. mean you're in a tight heel. Doesn't mean the dog is on your right or your left. It just means sure. that you are actually able to enjoy your walk with your dog because they're not, you know, freight train pulling you from, from out front. Yeah. I think, um, I think Susan, I think it's Susan Garrett that has this like concept called the reward zone, which is where you reward the dog for being at your side. Um, and if you, if you reward the dog for being at your side a lot, um, then they, like anything you reward, it happens more often. And um, most people tend to like the dog the dog being near them. So when we do lead walking training, actually, um, I always tell people, always reward kind of like, depends on the height of your dog, but like, it's usually kind of like right next to your knee, 
right? Is is or mm-hmm. like it's right next to your leg essentially. Um, so you're you're always um, rewarding the dog for being where you want them because one thing that you can, uh, which people that teach competitive hill work stuff will know, is when you start rewarding the dog in front of you, you get what people call crabbing, which is where the dog starts walking sideways, expecting the tree in front of you. Um, yeah. Anyway, we're getting yeah, into exactly. geeky technical dog training stuff now. <laughs> no, it's great. It's perfect. But I, I do like that system. I use that a lot. And it's one of the reasons I use a hands-free leash a lot. Like I, I really? put a hands-free leash How on almost every client that I work with. Yes. Because clients are always, you know, grabbing and pulling and holding and just really overusing the leash. And so taking mm. that out of their hands, which is completely uncomfortable for most of the clients that I work with, they're like, wait, I'm not holding anything, um, allows you to actually use the proper hand. And I say proper just because it's easier to get the reward in the place where you want it for the dog. And you can also kind of hack it a little bit to where you're you're turning back and forth in a way that the dog automatically lines up with where you want it. So you can reward right at that instant in that position so I, I love working with a hands-free leash just because yeah, it I takes the it takes idea. the over communication out. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I'm so I'm old-fashioned. I'm OG. Like I like the original like one that Dr. Sophia Ian used to use from PetSafe. It's like I don't know, 19 bucks. Now they have all these fancy like bungee ones and carabiner ones. And I'm like, mm, I like the old school, very simple, <laughs> like just around your waist, hands-free leash. And then I use the um another thing that's just a side note I always talk to people about is that. The hands-free leash has a clip on each end. So you clip the, you know, one side of the belt, one side of the dog for anyone that hasn't used them out there. But I like it for travel and vehicles and things like that too. You know, so the dog doesn't become a flying projectile. You can use it stationary. I get those little eyelets that you just, you know, you can twist into the stud on the wall to work on impulse control, approaching a dog and, and relieving approach and space. But yeah, I use, I use those for a lot. I definitely use it for loose leash walking quite frequently because it, it just takes takes some of that misconception of what they should be doing with their hands out of the equation and makes reward systems a little bit more timely and easier for the client. Yeah. Do you know, that's a really great idea, Sarah. And I'm definitely going to give that a go because I do find that people struggle with what to do with their hands and trying to do multiple, just the coordination of it all. And, you know, that's the same reason that I don't use clickers. Yeah. Um, I, I just use verbal markers. Like for me, uh, I just use the word yes. So the word yes means what you've just done has uh, won your award to the dog. And um, I just find it so much easier just to say yes than it is for someone to have a clicker in the hand along with the treats, along with the lead. Um, yeah, so, you know, it's, it's exactly the same logic. Yeah, I agree. I'm, I'm kind of a, a, a fewer things to handle and teach as possible. And if you can use your voice, the um, there's a couple of exceptions because I don't I don't really use clicker training either. I use yes or I use good, you know, something like that based on what the owners uh, kind of already done. Or if it's a puppy, we start one. You know, we'll start with yes. But um, oftentimes, like uh, there, I've had two little Maltese puppies that I've worked with that are just you know they have the attention span of less than a gnat and they're all over the place and they have super fast little busy brains <laughs> and bodies and. And um, because I feel like clients over communicate with their dogs to where they talk in full sentences. Are you going to be a good boy today? Mm. Are we going to go for a walk? Do you want to get in the car and go for a ride? Like car, ride, walk. And it's, it's hard to translate that. So sometimes if I have an over communicator or a really tiny little dog that timing is important, I'll, uh, you know, I'll encourage them to use the clicker. But I'm the same way. I feel like the more you have in your hands, you're, you're fiddling with a treat pouch and you're fiddling with a clicker. And while you're fiddling with the treat pouch, you're trying not to lure or bribe, but at the same time, you want to reward timely. So 
Yeah, the more that you have in your hands and the more you have to deal with, especially for a client that's learning from, you know, that doesn't have this skill set prior, they're learning a lot of new things, you know, early on. Okay, I have to do this, but I can't do that. And this is how I communicate. And this is how I don't. This is the difference between a lore and a reward. This is how I use my fingers. This is how, you know, it's a lot for people. So I feel like the more tools that you add for them to learn, sometimes the harder it can be. Yeah, I'm so glad you said that about the communication as well, because that reminds me that was something that a client pointed out to me recently. I was working with a dog and um, uh, I have this thing I'm always pushing, uh, which is uh, trying to get dogs more engaged with people. And one thing that when you say to someone, well, you know, we need your dog to pay more attention to you. Their instinctive reaction is to start talking to their dog all the time. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> one thing I was working with a dog, the other, you know, and, and something the client said to me was, oh, you actually don't talk to him very much. It's like, you know, I didn't really think about that, but you're right. I'm kind of not really talking to the dog. I'm waiting for the response that I want. And I can be really patient with that. I think it's important to be patient. Sometimes people are so quick to give the dog the answer, right? So uh, usually we, if, if the dog isn't very engaged, we'll have them on a long line. Maybe let's say there's a dog in the horizon that they're focused on, right? I'm gonna, instead of talking to the dog loads and trying to get them to pay attention to me, I'll just wait. And as soon as they turn back to me, then I can use my mark word, yes. And then I can reward with a toy or with food or whatever I want to reward with. Um, that's really, really powerful. Like, I feel like that's like one of the most underestimated things in dog training. It's like the power of teaching the dog that the thing that is ordinarily a distraction, like a dog in the distance, is the signal to pay attention to you. Like, that just is like the biggest game changer ever. Because now, when you practice that a lot, when you go to the park, instead of all these things that were ordinarily a distraction being a distraction, now they're actually working in your favor because it's like the world is telling them, hey, pay attention to him, right? It's like all these things that would ordinarily be a distraction for most dogs um, become cues to pay attention to you, you know? And I've, I've done the same thing with like whole, like, because I work in the city uh, quite a lot, Sometimes in these city parks, um, people will go to the park and they can let their dog off leash here in the UK. And um, But what they'll often learn, the dogs will often learn, is to run around and look for distraction. Picnickers, other dogs, whatever, to run around and just create their own fun, right? And you end up with this dog that has learned that the park is somewhere to do this activity of running around, finding other dogs to play with, finding all these distractions. So we just flip that on his head. So we take the dog into the park and the moment we cross the threshold, we start doing exciting things with them. Maybe we start rewarding them for paying attention to us. We start playing games with them. And then uh, maybe we do that. Maybe we only do that for like two minutes, right? And then we walk back out the park. We do that for a week. And then uh, at the end of a week, when you start walking into the park, instead of your dog anticipating going to look for distractions, they're now anticipating the games with you and now you have a dog that's way more connected with you and we've changed what the dog is expecting in the park. So there's lots of these little uh, tricks that can be done with engagement, which I think are really, really valuable. Yeah, I agree. And and the, the thing to keep in mind, and I think it's another one of those points to clearly communicate with clients too, is that 
for example, your park example, your dog has a habit of doing something. And now we're going to kind of break that habit and build a new habit. And that can be a lot of work. So I think that communication is, is really important to be clear about that and to put it in a way that owners can say, okay, what's the last habit that I tried to break and how difficult was it? And, you know, kind of putting some humanistic characteristics into that pattern to realize what the dog is actually going to be going through while they work through this to really help provide that patience needed to see that progress. And the other thing I want to mention too, is keeping those, um, sessions short. I like that you mentioned that too. You know, oftentimes we block off one hour of time to go out and work with a client for an in-person session. And I always tell my clients, like, I don't expect you to work for an hour when you're working with your dog, five, 10, 15 minutes at a time, an hour is a long time to work with a dog. So, you know, this idea or this perception that we're going to go to the park and we're going to do this for an hour and we're going to completely exhaust the dog and he's going to be completely confused and frustrated um, for those in-between times when you're not with them to to be super clear about that. Cause you know, perception is, is really key. We looked at, um, you know, earlier we, we, we had chatted before about the use of different tools and the use of tra- or, or trainers that use these different tools, but trainers that are professionals using these tools in very specific manners. But if you put what you do out there, like if you are, you know, we are the social media world now. So as a dog trainer, if you're showing, you know, the use of specific tools, you have to remember that your audience of pet parents is going to see that and want to emulate that, whether they have the ability to do so or not. So I did want to talk about that a little bit, because in regard to perception, as we were talking about what's going on and what we're conveying to the client, um, I get really worried. I get worried when, you know, trainers, it's just fun. You're showing what you're doing. You're throwing your job up there so other people can watch and follow you and keep up. But you're also showing methods that um, are meant to be used in very specific ways under the guise of of very professional training under skilled people. And then if you have owners emulate that, you can create real problems with your dogs, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a real lack of um, content around uh, resolving behavioral issues positively, like you hardly ever see any content around that. So, I mean, we definitely put out some content. Well, I did before the lockdown, put up some content working with an aggressive dog in a, in a positive manner. Um, but there, you're right, you know, I think that a lot of the content that you do see out there is is doing that in, in ways, to be honest with you, I just think a lot of it is very unethical. You know, it's the way that, well, everyone has their own ethics and this is the problem, but you know, my eth- subjective ethics. Yeah, my <laughs> ethics are: I, I don't believe in using fear or pain to motivate dogs. You know, and and that pretty much guides everything I do. So that's why I don't believe in in using um, electric collars, um, prong collars, all of that kind of stuff because those tools work through delivering. As much as people want to deny it, like it it works by delivering pain. You can call it discomfort. You can call it whatever you want. The fact is, is you know. Whatever, it's, it's something I'm not comfortable with. So, um, so yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think that, the, I, I don't know if this is what you were saying, Sarah, or if, if maybe if you're disagreeing here, but I think there should be more content showing how to resolve behavioral issues positively. And that's not to say that if you have an aggressive dog, you should go and emulate that. Um, but I think when there's only one voice out there, when the when when you search into YouTube aggressive dog training and all you can find is prong collars, electric collars, leash corrections, then you're going to think that's the way to do it. 
um, you know, you know. So I, yeah, I don't, I don't know if that's um, what your what your view is on that. Yeah, I, I think it's important for people to understand that there are alternatives. You don't have to always do things this way in order to get these results that you're seeing on somebody's social media platform. I mean, I, I'm sure you've probably heard the term shock and awe before because. You know, there's a lot of suppression of behaviors that comes with positive punishment. And I think that's really important to highlight. And most people don't even understand what positive punishment really is from a, a pet parent perspective. So the more education, the more content we can get out there about what some of these alternative methods are that aren't going to cause suppression of behaviors rather than actually tackling kind of the root of the problem and the emotional state of the animal, kind of getting out of that old mindset of you're just going to do it because I'm telling you to do it. And that's all there is to it. There are consequences if you don't do what I tell you to do. And it really is a shame because I feel like it degrades the relationship between the dog and the client. I, I mean, I, I really feel sad for, you know, the, the, the degradation of that to where you go from, you know, really loving your canine companion to now your dog doesn't trust you or your dog isn't responding to those type of things. So I, I definitely think showing these alternative mes methods is, is critical. Um, you know, and I'll tell you, I've, I've been criticized in the past too for not putting more of my um, methodology on my own YouTube channel. And um, my response to that is kind of, I'm not here to entertain you. I'm here to educate you. I'm not an entertainer. <laughs> I do things from an mm -hmm. educational perspective, but there's also a reason to that too. And, and our job, in my opinion, as behavior professionals or dog trainers is to make the situation better, not worse. So if I have a dog that's incredibly fearful of strangers and I bring a cameraman with me and we're in their face and we're focusing on filming, I'm not making that situation better. I'm making that situation worse. So I feel like there's a, a bit of a difficult balance there to where you can actually get footage and show some methodology without compromising your behavior modification plan as well. I'm not going to do anything that I feel is going to, um, you know, potentially slow down the progress that I'm going to make with a dog. So herein lies the balance. Yeah, you're right. We need to get more information out there and show what we're doing, not expecting our audiences to emulate that, but letting them know that there are alternative methods. In fact, there's a lot of alternative methods that the dogs can find a lot of enjoyment and a lot of fun in as well. Um, now, I will say, I'll buck you on one thing. <laughs> Um, e-collars in this, again, this is all opinion. This is all subjective and no one has to agree with me. I don't care. But, um, I have seen positive use of stimulation collars in the past. You know, I've worked, I specifically trained a deaf dog years and years back on one. Um, but the problem I find is that the majority of dogs are not responding to e-collars or stimulation in the way that we are perceiving that they might. Um, one of my, one of the things I hate hearing people say literally just, oh, it's like pet peeve is go ahead and put that prong collar on your own arm or your own neck and yank it and see how it feels. See, it's not that bad. And I'm like, oh man, you know, it's, that's not really how that works. First of all, dogs necks are way more sensitive. They even have less cell layers on their necks than we do. And, you know, the list goes on and on, but there's all these different excuses for these different things. And I think really pushing across these alternatives is important. But again, I've seen positive use of them. At least I feel from what I've seen from the dogs, getting excited, getting ready to go, being happy and not delivering something that's painful, but rather more of a tap and having an actual association with that, that the dog understands and knows like training in a recall from long distance. You know, the tap is the same thing as me yelling at you at the park from across the way. Hey, come, you know, um, but unfortunately, mm -hmm. even though I'm okay with that type of training, I don't see that happening. 
very few and far between do I see trainers actually using it in that regard. What I see is you did something I don't like, boom, I'm going to hit the stimulus. Or I'm going to hold the stimulus down and shock the hell out of you until you stop doing what I don't want you to do. You know, you're barking yeah. excessively. So I'm going to hold it down and wait till you're done. And then I'm going to alleviate that, um, you know, that punishment to reinforce your behavior of, of, of stopping that. But yeah, I, I just, I worry about how much is out there that is very much positive punishment based where people think they're seeing results from that, but in reality, it's not necessarily fixing the problem or being used in a way that the dog feels good about it or is in a positive emotional state during that process. Yeah, I'm really glad that you were, you're honest about that as well. I think this, uh, it's really important to be honest um, in this community. You know, I think that there's a lot of dog trainers that that um, the way that they put, they talk and they speak about what they do and what they actually do are very different. You know, so I, I'm, I'm glad that you're honest about the, the deaf dog situation. I think I obviously the deaf dog thing um, is like, you know, I think that's kind of a known, like a lot of people um, will use electric collars to uh, work with deaf dogs. The, obviously when you're, it's hard to approach the subject without getting too geeky. But when you use when you use the electric collar for that purpose, there's an element of counter conditioning that has to happen, right? Like you have to get the dog used to uh, seeing the stimulation as a positive and not a negative. And in that, I have um, two kind of questions because I think you're right. In, in in many ways, there's nothing ethically wrong with that once you've done that counter conditioning, right? My question would be twofold, right? Why not just do it with a vibration collar, which potentially is is going to be less aversive? Hey, maybe it's not. It depends on the independent in the individual dog. But also, I feel like that's such a specific use case for most dogs. Like for most dogs that aren't deaf, or really for every dog that isn't deaf, you can achieve the same thing with a whistle, right? Like you can achieve the same cue response like i don't need to put an electric collar on my dog to get the recall at a distance i can just blow a whistle or i can just yell mm -hmm. or i can whatever um so uh you know sometimes with the electric collar i think that we can get dragged into these like hypothetical situations where it's like well is it okay if you know um which is why i think generally we we come down to these blanket statements because it starts to get really silly but you're you're right there is obviously there's a black and there's like it's not always black and white right you know uh, that deaf dog situation is probably a good situation where uh, maybe that was the best solution um but you you know you were talking earlier about we have to be careful about the information that we put online because sometimes people don't hey they, maybe they see the video of you training the deaf dog with the electric collar and think, oh great, I, t I teach a recall with, this is how I do it. I get the electric collar and, you know, they don't realize, well, actually there's a specific reason we're using this. There's a specific protocol that we've gone through to make sure that this isn't something the dog dislikes. Yeah. So, well, and I, I'll tell you even, um, and I'm, I'm a member of the IABC and now they have a review committee. So if you ever even think about using an e-collar on a dog, you have to go through the, the review committee first, which whatever, I'm fine. Um, but I will tell you that I, like 99.9% .9 of the time I would not use an e-collar in training. And if I do, for whatever reason, if I have a deaf dog, you know, 
or a blind dog or something that I'm working with. And I feel that that's going to be valuable. And the dog is going to perceive that as something positive in regard to our relationship together. You're not going to see me doing it. I am not going to put that on social media because that's a one-off. And the last thing that I want to happen from a perception perspective is someone to see me training that way and think that that's the way that I train. And that's what they should do too. So for those rare one-off situations where I may potentially do something like that based on the individual dog that I'm working with, you're not going to see that, at least from my perspective. I'm not going to show that off because that is perception. Someone's going to, one of my clients is going to be like, oh, well, this is what you did. So I'm going to do it. No, 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 don't do that. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's really important, sir. I'm so glad you said that because it's not just electric collars either. We, um, I think just as people, like, like almost human nature, we get really obsessed with these like really rare situations. Like, I've seen people talk about uh, things like some of the protocols surrounding choice, right? Where someone will tell a story about this, like, one in 10,000 situation where it was really important to use this protocol um, to start getting the dog working or the animal working with them again. And then, like, you know, you then you'll start seeing posts cropping up on social media, people doing the same thing and, like, relaying that. It's like no like they were doing that for like incredibly yes. specific reason for uh, an incredibly rare situation it does not apply to every animal ever and um i'm not like uh without going into all the stories and stuff um you know i'm not uh i'm not saying anything necessarily bad about cho- giving animals choice because um, i think there are some situations where that's really helpful um, you know, like the story that this person relayed, but you have to be careful about drawing bigger conclusions from very rare events. Like it's, it's really not helpful. Um, but we like, it's so much sexier to talk about like the really rare situation that this occurs in, as opposed to, well, why don't we just get really good at the 99%? Exactly. Uh, or talk about that. Well, and, and and to your point too, even the overgeneralization of using some of these things, like some of this stuff is rare, but I think about, you know, some of the ads that I see from different dog trainers where it's, you know, I can fix this in five days guaranteed with any dog. And, and I'm like, ah, you know, something tells me that you're using a method that's going to, again, suppress a behavior or show something that's not really happening or just kind of use a Band-Aid fix to slap it on there for that awe factor. But um, you, you just can't generalize like that. Every dog is individual. They have independent motivators, different likes, different dislikes. And until you actually get to know a dog, which I'm sorry, you can't do that in a five-day period, <laughs> like successfully anyway. Right. If you feel like proving me wrong, whoever's out there listening, let's let's see it. I'm, I'm, I'm always open to new ideas and new thoughts, but um, it's just, it's an overgeneralization. And I think a mm-hmm. lot of that comes from methodology. If you are the type of trainer that has one specific thing that you do, whether I e-collar train every dog or I clicker train every single dog. I feel like there's a lot that's being missed when it comes to the individualism. So in not overgeneralizing and feeling like you have to do, you know what, I use this method, you know, on three dogs and it works successfully. So now I'm going to use it on every dog. I just, I don't feel like that helps you evolve in your practice at all. I mean, what's your opinion there? Yeah, no, I do agree with you. I think that there is individual variety and, um, you know, I think I think it was Ian Dunbar that spoke about, like, he wrote this blog post and he was talking about how most dog trainers 
really need to know two or three ways of dealing with every problem. And I think he got a lot of stick for that. Um, but I think there is, hmm. like, I think the truth is somewhere in the middle, where it's like, you need to, um, like, we shouldn't deny that the majority of dog training is probably done in very, like, every dog trainer has their way, like, you have your way of teaching lead walk, loose lead walking, right? I have my way of teaching loose lead mm-hmm. walking. Um, I bet you use that way of teaching loose lead walking to... 95% of your clients, right? Like there isn't a huge amount of variety. Um, and the same is true, I think, of um, behavior problems. I think with behavior problems, you will use um, the same methods for the majority of your cases. For me, the thing that changes is the order in which we use them, that changes quite a lot. Um, and also the kind of the details of the method. Right, like, because I could say I use look at me training for like maybe ninety five percent of um, my cases with aggression, but maybe I use it towards the end of training. Maybe I use it at the start of training. Maybe I start at fifty meters away. Maybe I start at ten meters away. Right, like, there's so much variety within the method. So, like, I just feel like the truth is somewhere in between. You know, where it's like that's a good point. Yeah, absolutely. There's. Yeah. And and thinking about some of the ways that I tackle things too, there, there are, you know, there's, there's always these check boxes that I want to meet and those, those remain the same. You know, we were talking earlier about like foundational things like nutrition and medical concerns. And so we're always going to check those boxes no, no, no matter what. So I think you're right. It is kind of right in the middle. There are things that you have that are go to for specific behaviors or, um, you know, really kind of trying to adjust those behaviors. And then sometimes there you have to really kind of weave in, you know, what's working for that individual dog. And yeah, timing with placement. Maybe, you know, with dog A, you start right off the bat working with those loose leash skills, right? Mm-hmm. You, you want to get them less reactive on leash, so you start with that. Or you have a much bigger problem that needs to be addressed immediately. And so, you know, things like loose leash skills or any obedience type things are put well on the back burner. Yeah, and, and just adjusting according to that dog. But yeah, you're right. Using a lot of the same type of methods anyway um, from case to case to case. So, yeah. oh, and speaking of methods, I didn't actually answer your question um, in regard to conditioning when it comes to e-collars. Sorry about that. But you mentioned counter conditioning. And actually, I look at it from a classical conditioning perspective. So with e-collar, um, and again, not to encourage use of this, but the way that I do it is the same way I muzzle train. So when that... Amazon package arrives with my Baskerville muzzle, the dog gets to be there as I'm opening it, as I'm excited about it, and I'm pulling it out and they're getting to sniff it too. So right off the bat, I start building in that positive association with that collar. That collar comes out, we're going to have some fun. So hopefully there is no um, necessarily counter conditioning. I mean, right. There's there's no, there's no um, emotional state to change about it. Um, so I, I like to start kind of from a classical perspective, but also if at any point in time, I feel like the dog is uncomfortable with it, brakes are on, I'm going to stop. Um, but then also, um, to your point too, about using vibration versus stimulus, um, I've seen a lot of dogs find vibration to be very aversive. So I, that's where I go back to kind of the individual dog. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I worked with one client that had a, uh, had predatory behavior issues with their dog and, um, they could, you know, I, I was really sad to hear that this happened, but they could shock the hell out of it all day and the dog didn't care. But if you hit that vibration button, the dog was like, Oh, 
you know, and you could just see it completely collapse into itself. So I'm just careful about using anything um, aversive in general. So if the dog responds well to it, great. Okay, we'll keep moving forward. If they don't, I shut it down altogether. But yeah, that's why I kind of went back and forth with that. No, no, you make a very good point. And also I think this comes back to the thing of we can't decide what is rewarding for the dog and we can't decide what is punishing for the dog. And oftentimes we, we make general statements like, well, chicken is better than uh, kibble. But, you know, you're probably going to come across some dogs that prefer kibble. Right? Like, yeah, they're more yeah, Or have chicken allergies, right? Right, right. <laughs> so, like, that's where the individual stuff becomes important. Um, yeah, but uh, TV dog training in, in general, uh, well, I, I think that we really should try to support those that are um, trying to put positive training out there. And even, you know... With regards to the bit, I think the behavior stuff is especially important because there's still a lot of people that think that you can't resolve things like aggression with um, with positive methods. So I think it's really important to, for people to show that you can. Um, and that shouldn't be seen, although I do understand what you're saying, Sarah. I know that there are people that will. It shouldn't be seen as, a, OK, go and replicate this. Right. right. Um, unfortunately, there are people that will. Um, but. Uh, I'd rather, even though that's not ideal at all, I would rather them be going out there and doing parallel walking with their dog than going out there and, you know, shocking them or pulling them on the lead or, or, or whatever. Obviously, I would, my best case scenario is they go and find a trainer or a behaviorist that can actually, you know, guide them through the process. But, um, you know, we can only control the information that we put out there. So... Yeah, I agree. But how do you, how do you make that sexy to the networks? They seem to love these stories of, mm. you know, here's the family story and here's what's going on. There's not really any methodology in it. There isn't any, you know, we did this and we did that. And this is how we, you know, we had systematic desensitization and this is what that looks like. People are interested in that story. It's like posting the cute puppy picture versus the informative thing. So mm. when it comes to, you know, being that um, being that figure, having somebody that can fill that role from a TV mm -hmm. perspective, how do you make that attractive to networks? Because it's a completely different process and they just don't seem to be picking up on stuff like that. Yeah, you know, I'm, like a lot of people make that argument that, um, you know, positive dog training isn't sexy. And I used to always think that, but I'm not so sure anymore. Having worked in TV, I, I think that what's really going on is that TV networks just really aren't, like the idea of like hiring a positive trainer or hiring a balanced trainer, like it's not even, like it's not even in the, like that's not even in the thought process at all, right? Like we're not even thinking about that. What we're thinking about are, you know, how good is this person gonna be on television? You know, how charismatic are they? Um, you know, do they do they fit what we're, the, the, what we're trying to achieve here? Right. And that's why you see people like Caesar Milan on TV, who's very charismatic. Um, yeah. Or you see people. He's a character. You see people that have these weird niches, which are really hilarious if you're not involved in reality television of like the dog trainer that wears the full suit. <laughs> you know? Oh, yes. <laughs> or like even Victoria Stilwell, like obviously we all love Victoria Stilwell, but she had to start yes. out like in this dominatrix outfit. She had because... her dominatrix outfit. Yeah. <laughs> You've got like, to get their attention somehow, right? <laughs> this is reality television, unfortunately. And obviously we yes. were talking, Sarah, about the new show, which 
you know, his whole, he's got this whole backstory of like, I'm from this um, deprived area and, you know, I'm, um, you know, I'm a minority in, involved in dog training and all of this. So like, he's got his own story. Like, this is what TV loves. This is what reality uh, casting departments love. You know, they want the quirky story. I don't think yeah. that they really think about positive versus balanced training. They're just looking at personalities. So something this, that'll resonate with people, but it doesn't do anything for setting an example. Yeah, I do. Do you know what? It's weird for me, though, because um, obviously we will see how the networks react to. I do you know. What? I think I think maybe I just had it good because we've seen backlash to so many dog training television shows and that hasn't seemed to get shows cancelled. Um but yeah. when I did the Amazon TV show, like they were super, super conscious of making sure everything was done in the kindest way possible. Um, so I don't, may, oh. I think maybe I was just spoiled because um, they were very aware of that kind of stuff. But I'm not sure that other networks are um, because otherwise you would think that with all this backlash, we would see shows get cancelled for using clearly unkind methods and we don't and what seems to be the metric that matters more than anything else is how many people are watching the television show right if there's if it's uh, mm -hmm. pe people are watching it then we're going to keep making it if they're not making if they're not watching it then we're not going to keep making it and that's why it's kind of frustrating sometimes because i feel like as a community like the time that this the canine intervention show came out like i think i it kind of put me in a bad mood because that TV show came out at the same time as Shirag Patel's show in the UK. So I yeah. know that this is different because you have you don't get it in America, at least yet. Hopefully it will cross over there. But like Shirag is way too I don't I've never spoken to Shirag about this, so this is not coming from Shirag. <laughs> from, from my perspective, it was like Shirag's show was not getting spoken about very much. And all of the positive trainers were spending all of this time earning about canine intervention. And it was like you know, I just really wish that as a community, we would get behind the positive training shows as much as we kind of criticize. Complain the about the others. Don't. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Um, you know, like even the pack, right? I think that there were bigger issues for why it got cancelled. You know, I think that um, I think it, it came down to they were trying to do some restructuring of the whole reality TV department. So we're kind of a victim of that anyway. Um, yeah. But, you know, if it was a show that was hugely, hugely popular, I don't think it would have been cancelled. <laughs> you know, like we did yeah. make an awesome TV show, but unfortunately not enough people watched it. That's just the harsh reality of it. Um, so uh, hopefully if we can, I, I, I want to put more of a spotlight on promoting the stuff that we, we really like and encouraging people to do more, more, make more content. Like whether that's uploading to YouTube, TikTok, any kind of social media, or whether that's actually getting involved in the TV world. Because from my perspective, I have not seen a like, oh no, we're not gonna cast a positive dog trainer. What I've seen is they want people that are interesting, that are char charismatic, um, that have some kind of personal brand and preferably have a social media following already. So if you do right, want so to... Right, so they can tap into that. Yeah, so if you want to lead the charge, 
then um, then don't be discouraged. Don't think that because you're a positive dog trainer, you can't be on television. Because I think that you can. Um, you know, we just have to to hustle. You know, we just have to put up content and um, you know get get our stories out there and and they get picked up. Yeah, get in front of it. Well, and I I also think I have a theory that um, if you if if the average audience could actually see what some of the methods used are in some of these TV shows that they would probably have the same sentiment about it that we do. They would probably be put off by some of the stuff that's done. And again, this is just my own opinion, but I know like the recent show that just came out on Netflix, you don't see any training methods really at all. All you see is the beginning, you get the story, you get some background, you get some story about the main characters, you get some story about the the lead character of the show, and you get to see how unruly the dog is at first. And then you kind of sometimes see somewhat of a finished product or somewhere in the process. Um, there was one that scared the hell out of me because it was a protection dog that didn't have a very good on-off switch. So I was kind of on the edge of my seat the whole time. But you don't see the method behind Mm. it. And I think that's what softens it. People don't Mm. really realize um, what some of the methods used are. So, But I I like your positive attitude about positive dog trainers and TV Mm. because I don't think that's been the general consensus, at least in some of the forums that I'm in. I feel like they think that they're being pushed aside because their methods aren't as fun or aren't as awe-inspiring awe or whatever. So I like to hear you say that because you have experience with TV and you've been there and I love that Amazon wanted to see kindness. That's awesome. And I, I think a lot of people will feel inspired by knowing that it's not just because you have positive training methods that keep you out of the spotlight. It's, you know, sure. it's about a lot more. So get your content out there, you know, make yourself noticeable to be seen if you want to mm-hmm. be in that position to where mm-hmm. you can Kind of like you said, lead the charge and be it, show your methods and and show that you are having the same results just by doing things a little bit differently with the dogs. Yeah, I um I I don't think that's the case at all. I don't think that um you know I've been around a lot of casting people. I've been around a lot of um, TV development people, and that has not been my experience. You know, it's not been that they don't want um a positive dog trainer. I've I've only heard one story of that being the case, um but it's not been my experience. That so. You know, there are things that, uh, you know, like when you start making a TV show, like, because I've actually had a lot of conversations with people since the pack about trying to make more television shows. And what becomes more difficult is you were talking about that, that format of like, you know, we have a dog with a behavior problem, we get a dog trainer in and you know, there's some drama, we film it all, and then, you know, end of the show, we see these dogs that have the um, problem behavior resolved. Like, my experience so far has been working with a lot of um, people that want to make TV shows, is that's not what they want to do. Like, a lot of the TV world is about trying to come up with new concepts, and if you, like, they don't want to redo what's already been done. Um, now, That's good to hear. So, well, it is and it isn't because it would be really nice to do one of those shows, which was positive. Like, that would be my dream. (laughs) (laughs) But unfortunately, it's more like from a TV creative perspective, it's like, well, what can we do differently? The Pack was a good example of that. Very different, not a dog training show, just really about dogs and dog training kind of came along for the ride. But um, also, like, how can we add a twist on it? Right? Like, look at Shirag's show, right? It's like, it's not, Mm -hmm. it's not, there's a twist on it. It's like, cats and dogs right like um cats and dogs at war or something like that yeah so like that's the twist right it's not just the behavior 
Although the show is is pretty much that. The twist is is cats versus dogs, right? Like so. That's the kind of thing yeah. that um, people that develop TV shows are looking for. They're looking for like a fresh twist on like how can we do a dog training show but differently. Um, so yeah, that's that's a discussion that we tend to have a lot. What's going to bring people in? Well, the, the the sad part for me is I feel like a lot of these little taglines or these twists and not sure odds show. I mean, obviously, the, mm-hmm. I put him in a different level. He's wonderful. But, you know, for Netflix or for Amazon or whatever else, you you kind of have these misleading um, taglines or, or information that you put out there, so to speak. Like, you know, the newest one that's out, it's the dogs that no one else will take. And, you know, I'm, I'm <laughs> over here scratching my head like I've never said no to a dog. In fact, most of the behavior professionals I work with, they don't say no to any dog. Like we're willing to work with all of them. Obviously, if it's something out of our expertise, you know, if someone comes to me and says, I want to train a protection dog, well, I don't do that kind of work. Let me put you in touch with somebody that does. Sure. But from a behavior perspective, you know, I hate yeah. hearing things like that. I'm like, that's not accurate. Why are you putting this out there? You know, so coming yeah. up with real um, mm-hmm. content or twists, as you call them, that are, you know, just accurate, I think would help too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I used to get really annoyed by it as well, but I think I've kind of become desensitized to it. Or it's like I don't worry about that so much now, as long as the content is good. Um, because you know, it's kind of like the whole dog trainer in a suit thing. Like I remember when I was first getting involved in the TV, I was like, "Oh, it's so unrealistic! Why would you have a dog trainer in a full suit? It doesn't yes. make any sense at all." And I like, get <laughs> frustrated about it. And now I'm like, oh, it's just the game that we play. <laughs> you know? Yeah, like, it is. I'm not that, That's the business. I'm not, that, I'm not that bothered about it anymore. But to be honest with you, for people that are dog trainers and are listening, like, I think that the future really is in um, social media more than anything else. You know, I, I think that that's the best place to put your focus is on, on um well, at the moment, I think YouTube and TikTok are the most important platforms for growing a following. Um, that's just my personal opinion on social media, um, but social media in general anyway. And, and if you do that well, then it puts you, if you do want to do television, it puts you in a huge advantageous position, um, because uh, oftentimes they'll find you to be honest. Um, but mm. if, if you're, because usually when they cast a TV show, they're going to, they're not just going to go, oh, we really want Sarah for a TV show. They're going to go, okay, well, we've got 10 people. We've got Sarah, we've got Mike, we've got the, you know, like, and then there's going to be like more of an audition process. Um, And oh yeah, that reminds me actually, Sarah, that's one thing I think positive dog trainers shoot themselves in the foot, right? Because sometimes networks will come to you with a crazy idea and Mm -hmm. try not to say no. (laughs) 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 Right? Because the worst people always say yes the people that just don't care yes yeah you can do that yeah we can do that you know um and the positive dog trainers are the ones that kind of go picky um, yeah. no that's crazy why would, no <laughs> so of course they go okay well you know that's sarah crossed off the list right you, yeah you got to um you got to try and like shape it in the direction that you want to go right um you know, when they first approached me about the pack, if you hear the concept for that show, it's insane. It's like, let's take uh, 12 dogs, fly them all over the world, you know, and we're going to do these various challenges. There's going to be helicopters. There's going to be heights. It's go- You know, like, it's like, it sounds like a nightmare. Like, it sounds like, oh, my God, that's like, 
what? That's going to be awful, <laughs> right? But, <laughs> but as we as we go through the planning, you know, uh, and we we refine things, you know, we we make adjustments, we figure out how we can train the dogs, what how much time is going to take, what we're going to do. Um, whereas it would have been really easy just right at the start to go, well, that's a crazy idea. That's going to be really stressful for the dogs. It's like if you like we haven't let's figure out what we can do because there's a lot of leeway you know um oftentimes tv network well not always but at least with amazon you know they have the money like they don't mind paying for the six weeks of home training for the two weeks of in-person training to fly all the dogs on private jets to make sure they don't get stressed you know to give the the dogs rest days even though that's going to um cost of production way more money it's like there are adjustments that can be made along the road to make make it work and if you just hear the idea and just shut off then Mm. unfortunately it's going to go to someone that really just you know doesn't care as much yeah so your advice is just get your foot in the door and kind of work with it as you can as things progress and see what kind of progress you can make yeah yeah of course obviously if it gets to a point where it's like there's no give then yeah. I would find myself in a situation where I'd go, okay, I'm going to step away from this. I don't feel like I'm being heard. Um, I don't feel like we're going to pull this off in a productive way if we're not able to make the changes that I'm suggesting. Um, but yeah, definitely get your foot in the door, start working with them. Don't like, don't block them off right at the first hurdle just because because they're trying to make an exciting TV show, especially at the, in the early stages. They're not necessarily thinking about anything else other than, you know, what can we do that's going to be big, that's going to be crazy, that's going to look really cool on television. So you have to work with that and then, um, you know, and and refine as you go. Um, So, yeah. Yeah, that reminds me of uh, Ken Ramirez. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him or not. He works with Karen Pryor Academy. But he he got a phone call one day about training butterflies. And um, <laughs> that's a perfect example of what you're talking about, where they, they called him and he's like, we want you to train, a, a, I don't know what they're called, a flock or a, whatever the term is for a large <laughs> pack of butterflies to fly sure. from one end of the stadium to the other. And he's like, yeah, sure. Okay, no problem. And hung up and was like, I have zero idea how this is going to happen, but I'm going to figure it out. Right. So just getting in the door and then, you know, you're, you're obviously being approached because you have a certain level of intelligence and a certain level of experience and that shows in your work. So now it's time to put it to the test. Yeah. Get in there and see what you can do with it. I've kind of taken that approach to my whole career, to be honest. Like, you know, I, you know, there's jobs when I was starting out, there were jobs with like famous trainers and stuff where I was like, oh, I'll never get that. You know, like that's the negative speakers. Like, I'm not qualified enough. I'm not going to get that job. Um, you know, I I have no business even applying for that. Um, but one thing I've tried to do right from the start is just kind of go, well, in that situation, it's just like, well, I'm just going to apply. I'm just going to put it in. Mm-hmm. Like, what's the worst that's going to happen? They're going to say no? Like, Exactly. Right? So I, I think that's a good approach to your whole career, to be honest. It's like, let's... Like, just, you have to be open for opportunities. You know, you have to be, uh, sometimes that negative self-talk can uh, can kind of close so many doors for you, where it's like, you're right, you know, in that situation with Ken, it's like, yeah, okay, I'm up for the challenge. Like, yes, let's do this. I, you know, when they approached me about doing all the stuff with the pack, it was like, 
you know, I think we had a conversation where it was like, yeah, this is a wild idea. They knew it was a wild idea, right? But it's like, <laughs> but uh, look, I'm going to be here. We're going to, I'll be with you. We're trying to figure out how to do this. So, you know, maybe if we give the dogs rest periods, you know, I, I saw a study by Daniel Mills that says rest periods do, but, you know, like we, we tr- I'm there to try and, I'll be your expert to try to figure out how we can do this, you know? Um, Get as, as close opposed- to the goal as you're looking for. Yeah. exactly right um so yeah sometimes you do have to be open to uh you, you just have to be open to opportunities it's really easy to to let your negative self talk just shut the door immediately yeah i agree and i think i think that's a, it takes a lot of practice because it's hard for people to hear no you know nobody nobody likes that it makes you feel uncomfortable but the answer already is no you know if you're not open to it if you're not willing to at least try you're already starting there right you're starting with that as your baseline so if you, if you say yes and you try to put your foot in the door, then that opens those other opportunities for you. And, and it's, a, it's a maybe no. Maybe you will walk away. Maybe you don't like it. Maybe you can't do it. But at least there's mm-hmm. options. At least you have that opportunity. Yeah. I, 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 um, I always think about um, – I think what gave me a lot of confidence was just that, that overall arching idea to begin with. I remember when I was in high school and I was looking for a summer job. And, um, I'd never, you know, my stepmom milked cows, but for the most part, I know what I was doing. And I was applying for a job at a dairy farm to milk cows. And I called, you know, old landline and the farmer picks up and he's this gruff old dude. And, you know, and he's like, you want to apply for the job? I was like, "Mm -hmm." he's like, we don't have any females working here. And I was like, you know, kind of almost put off. So the answer was no, we don't hire females now. In today's day and age, that doesn't work. But way back when I was in high school, you know, there was it was just open. Like, no, we don't hire females. That's not what we do. And I remember thinking, does he think I can't do the job because I'm a female? Is it because I'm too young? Like, what's the so anyway? He does, you know, what the normal employer thing is. Is okay, yeah. Well, if you want to work here, you can show up at three o'clock on Sunday afternoon. Blah 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 blah, and hangs up the phone. Like, he'll never hear from me again. Well, guess what? I showed up for that interview on the spot. And it became a yes. I got hired as the first female to ever work on his farm. And I was, you know, I put my heart and soul into it. It was just dairy farming. I wasn't going to have a career in dairy farming. It was a summer job, but um, poured myself into it and, you know, changed his belief system. You know, he was much more open to hiring females after that. But my whole point to say is that I think that even gave me some confidence throughout my life to where when you you believe the answer is no, um, you know, I, I encourage people to test that boundary a little bit, to try anyway and see what you can do. If anything, you might get a maybe out of it or even more so a yes out of it to where it becomes something really, truly great that, you know, you you you, you put kind of on the resume as something that you were um, very glad to be a part of as far as an experience goes. And maybe you teach some really cool things along the way to people that are watching you. I'm so glad that you shared that, Sarah, because um, that's a perspective I can't give, right? It's like, you're right you know um being a, a a woman you have a different you have a different challenge in itself obviously there are a lot of uh situations out there where there are people that are prejudiced you know and um yeah you know um this it's so i'm i'm really grateful that you shared that because i've i've definitely heard um similar stories of, of people that have had those kind of issues and you know, it's nice to hear someone that pushed for it, even though they shouldn't have to, right? Yeah. Um, but we're all quite, we're all really, you know, I, I, I'm i a pretty young guy. I didn't start, you know, it wasn't that long ago when I was learning about becoming a dog trainer. And even at that time, which was like, like around 10 years ago, 
the idea of being a dog trainer seemed pretty unusual. You know, like there weren't really a lot of people that did it for a career or that certainly wasn't as normalized as it is now. So mm-hmm. like to uh, become a dog trainer itself is already pretty crazy, really. <laughs> like sometimes, like I've been thinking about this more recently um, because like sometimes like I go into a restaurant or something like that and I'll see people working really, really hard, you know, and and I and then that kind of brings it home. It's like, wow, you know, I get to just train dogs, <laughs> you know, like, and I've had real jobs, so to speak. Dog training is a real job, I know, but like, I've had uh, jobs <laughs> like, like I worked uh, as a postman for a while, you know, and that was hard. Like, I'm so glad that I get to train dogs for a living. Like, we never. I think it's really easy to forget that, like, and not be grateful for that, especially if you're having a bad day. It's like but so lucky, you know, I'm really, it's very normal for dog trainers, especially self-employed ones, to do what? I think about two sessions a day is pretty standard, right? Like, you do mm-hmm. two one-to-one sessions a day. I mean, what, how much, how many hours of work is that, you know? It's, it's really not a lot compared to these people that are working 12-hour shifts, you know, in, in restaurants and all this kind of stuff. So, it was just incredibly fortunate, incredibly fortunate to be able to be a professional dog trainer. Yeah, I completely agree. And it's something just not to be taken for granted. But I, I feel like there's this misconception about work that you're supposed to not enjoy it. You know, you can't wait to clock out and get home and have your weekend. And I mean, dog trainers are some of the hardest working people. You might only work two sessions a day, but it might be seven days a week. And you might be working on behavior plans and you're continuing education outside of that. So it's certainly not easy, but it's fun and it, it's rewarding. And at the end of the day, you feel good about it. So it is funny you mentioned that. It's almost like that sense of guilt. Like it's not a real job because I'm enjoying it. Yeah. Like you're supposed to enjoy what you do, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. No, you are right. As being when you're self-employed, you kind of can work as many hours as uh, as you make yourself. And I mean, I have been uh, kind of a victim of hustle culture in the past where it's like, I just work crazy hours, mm. you know, and, and we do this challenge every year called Get In Shape Tempo, which is where in September we have like a running challenge, whoever can run the furthest distance for money, for charity. Oh. And uh, yeah, it's, it's on my podcast. So we do it with a couple of other dog trainers and it just gets crazy. <laughs> but people will always notice, like people will start noticing, like, why is Nick running at like one in the morning? <laughs> it's like, I'm running, a, I'm running at one in the morning because that's how much I work. Like yeah. I, I work until late yeah and I shouldn't like I the one thing that COVID has brought home to me is like you know I need to be more considerate about that um so I'm trying to work less but you're right as someone that's self-employed you you have to be disciplined with your own self-care you know obviously that's becoming more uh it's more of a hot topic to talk about and it is really important because Sarah I can tell because you have a podcast you're going to be exactly like me where it's like hey, we could be professional, me and you, we could be professional dog trainers and that could be it. But look at us. Yeah. Here we are recording podcasts <laughs> making more work for us. Exactly. <laughs> podcasts, like... research projects, YouTube channels, TV shows. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, you just can't sit still and just train, right? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And it wasn't that long ago, really, that my goal was just to be able to be a dog trainer. Like, I just, I didn't care about, like, having a podcast. I just wanted to be able to make a living as a dog trainer as a dog trainer, but it's just, I guess it's a human condition, or at least it's, it's people like me and you, Sarah, where it's like, 
once you've achieved that, so, okay, what can I do next? Yeah. Okay, well, I need to launch a podcast or I need to, you know, um, which is great because we get to deliver more education and like there's so many amazing benefits of that. But also like you have to be careful because you can uh, end up like working constantly. Yes. um, Yeah. When your priority list becomes so long, you forget about things that are even on it. You start to have an issue. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's really it's really tough. Yeah. um, You know, and it feels like such a first world problem as well, because when you start your career, you're at this point where I'm just so desperate to get clients so I can be able to do this. Um, And then once you're more established, you've been doing it for a long time and you've put some effort into your business you get to the point where you have too many clients yes. and it's like, oh my God, when am I going to fit this person in? They're really desperate. They're crying on the phone. Oh my God, I really need to help these people. Uh, and then that becomes really stressful because you don't have enough time in the day. And that feels like such a first world problem to complain about. Cause it's like, oh wow, here I am complaining about having too many clients while other people are struggling to make a living. Um, right. But it, it does, you know, it, it can be really stressful. So you know, uh, yeah, self-employment, you have to, um, you know, you have to be, you have to look after yourself, really. Well, and it seems like the majority of trainers are self-employed. Like, they're, they're not these big corporations. They're not these big, I mean, obviously, you have your pet smart or your pet co-trainers or things like that. But I feel like most dog trainers out there are really kind of working for themselves. They really have that personality that just kind of, that's the, that's the way it ends up going. Yeah, but I think that a lot of dog trainers are like, Uh, resent the fact that they're self-employed you know i I think that a lot of dog trainers don't want to be business owners yeah they just want to be dog trainers Mm -hmm. and um and and that almost makes the self-employment even worse because they don't want to learn about how to run a business efficiently so the business becomes like a tyrant and um and uh uh, you know so that can that can be a, a a big problem but unfortunately at the moment it's not easy to be an employed dog trainer there aren't a huge amount of opportunities obviously there's like assistance dog uh, groups that oftentimes will hire dog trainers some dog rescues will hire dog trainers and like you said uh, some of the big um pet retail chains will hire dog trainers but there's not a huge amount of opportunity at least if you want to earn a, a decent living as as an employed um dog trainer so you know you get pushed towards the self-employment and then you're a business owner and like there's a whole new set of skills that comes with that, which can be difficult. Yeah, I see that struggle in the veterinary community a lot too. You know, the veterinarians just want to practice medicine, but they want to make a decent living doing it as well. So oftentimes they'll branch off, you know, and it's you, you, all of a sudden you're wearing a marketing hat and you're wearing an administrative hat and you're you're having to learn, you know, business law and, and human resource law and oversee all of that too. It becomes very, very stressful. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you, you know... Uh, I guess we're getting a little bit off topic here, Sarah. I don't know if you mind that. No, but, um, that's perfectly fine. You know, when I... <laughs> <laughs> I love this longer format, by the way. I'm already feeling it. Like, I'm feeling like... Because we've been going for a while now. Like, it's... I've never... I don't think... This might be one of the longest podcasts I've ever done. And it just, like... You feel like you just start relaxing more and more and more. So it's really cool. But I was going to say, when... um, uh, You know, when I was starting out my career, like, there was a time where I went to a workshop um to learn about tracking <laughs> this is so silly. Oh. i was i was just on my own um i was like at that age i was like do you know what i want to be the best dog trainer in the world i don't care about anything else except learning about dog training so i put like 
uh, I, I'd paid for this uh, tracking course to learn about how to track with dogs. Uh, if you don't know what tracking is, teaching dogs to find uh, the scent of a person's ran away. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like if you imagine the police dog chasing the criminal. Um, and anyway, like when I got there, like I could hardly pay for my hotel because my car kept bouncing and that was like embarrassing. And then uh, on my way home, uh, I ran out of petrol. Uh, you call it gas, don't you? I ran out <laughs> of gas uh, and I couldn't afford to pay for any more. Oh, like, wow. And it had this really awkward exchange where it's like you have to fill out this form where you're going to promise to pay within seven days or whatever. And I had to like phone up my family and ask if they could pay. And like, it was just such a aversive experience for me. Like I was like having to phone people and ask for money. Like I just felt like, I just felt completely worthless. Yeah. You know, I just felt so bad. And um, that was a massive catalyst for me to be like, okay, I can't do this where I'm just like, just focused on dog training. I need to actually figure out this whole money thing, this whole business thing, so that I can uh, just be a bit more self-independent, right? Like, not have to be uh, borrowing money from people or, or worrying about that. So then I started reading about business, and thankfully, it was something that I actually started to enjoy, um, even though it wasn't something that I went to straight away. So when I started reading about it, I started enjoying it, and um, and you know now I actually even now I read a lot of business books. Um, but that came from just being in that hole of like not being able to afford gas, right? And just feeling awful. But good for you for adapting on the fly and finding the solution to it. I feel like a lot of people get stuck. You know, you hit a wall like that and it's, it's awkward and it's difficult and it's painful and, you know, you feel ashamed and and they're just like, this is just not for me. But instead, there there are other ways to to do that, and I, I think business is one of those avenues that can kind of help you through that. And it it's it there's a learning curve, you know. It takes a lot to kind of figure out what works and what doesn't. And I think learning from other people in the field really helps with that too. You know, relying on kind of those networks, your forums, um, and questioning people that have been there before can really help with that. But it, I mean, I love hearing stories from people, especially like you, where they, they hit that wall, that really difficult, challenging wall. And instead of saying, nope, this is not for me, that we're going to look for another solution. We're going to do something differently and we're still going to make this work and I'm still going to follow my dreams and I'm still going to make it happen. That's really hard. That's a big hurdle to overcome. Yeah. You know, in a weird way, it was actually dog training that taught me to be able to do that because when I had my first dog and he was calling, causing all of these issues, um my mom's partner said to me i said hey um like i don't need to go to like a dog training class or something and he was like what are you talking about you need, that's part of the fun you just train yourself <laughs> so <laughs> so um i went to what was available to me which was you know television and then i start and then once i started enjoying uh the tv shows i was like okay well i actually am quite enjoying this so i, I started reading dog training books and then started solving uh, the problems I was having with my dog. But then that, like, I was someone, like a lot of young males, that I didn't read before that. Like, other than in school, I've never read, a, like, a, I don't know if I'd ever read, read a book before I started getting into dog training. Like, um, and then I actually discovered that I quite enjoy reading. And then I realized that whenever you, ha- like, it's not just dog training. For me, in my life, whenever I've had a problem, like, usually you can find the solution or mm-hmm. a book about that, you know, uh, uh, that, that is helpful. So, yeah, that's kind of been like a problem-solving strategy for me 
through my whole life now and I've like learned to love reading thankfully because of dog training in a weird way yeah it's interesting what what other things come into your life that are unexpected you know from where you started I, I love reading in fact I'm overly addicted to books and I stress myself out when it comes to reading books because I get so excited about so many different books and then they stack up and then I get anxiety because I'm only a third of the way through the pile and I have all these wonderful ones and then other people are recommending new books and I'm like I have to add those to the list and so yeah I have the opposite problem (laughs) yeah yeah I used to do exactly the same thing because I used to always have physical books um and then I and I had the piles and all of that kind of stuff and now um now I'm pretty much just obsessed with audiobooks mm. because as a dog trainer, I'm driving so much that uh, I'm constantly in the car and I'd much rather listen to an audiobook than anything else. So um, one of my frustrations actually is that there aren't a huge amount of dog training audiobooks. Like there are some good ones, but not as many as there should be. Um, but yeah, audiobooks have been a revelation for me, like just being able to drive and read. Yeah, that's where my love for podcasts came from, was being in the car and getting annoyed with commercials and not wanting to pay for a satellite radio. And so then I started listening to podcasts instead. But yeah, audiobooks, I think that would be a really another uh, another good thing to add to the daily drive. I mean, you can be in the car for an hour going from one client to another at times. So yeah, that's a good idea. Oh, I work for so many more books because of, because of audiobooks. You know, it helps me get through so many, um, so many books. But yeah, I also listen to podcasts too. The only thing there is you were talking about the guilt of having a big book pile. Well, then I start feeling guilty about listening to podcasts. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, I should be, I should be listening to books. <laughs> oh, yes. You go back and forth with that one. Yep. I can feel that pain for sure. Yeah. What are some of your favorite uh, uh, podcasts and books out right now that you listen to? Oh, um, my favorite books. Well, you know, um, Actually, one thing that reminds me, because I almost I forgot to say something, but when you were talking about loving your career, one thing that I feel like it's getting talked about more, and I think that it is true, is that when you turn your passion into your career, there are many good things, and I wouldn't have it any other way. Like, I do love being a dog trainer, but it does, I think it does take some of the joy out of it. You know, like when I was uh, when I was younger and I wasn't a professional dog trainer, I was training my dog all the time. I was reading dog training books constantly. Um, now that I live dog training, sometimes when I'm finished with the day, I just I just want to I, I don't I'm done with dog training for the day. <laughs> I just want to do something yeah. else. Um, so I, I don't read a lot of dog training books anymore. Um uh, because my whole life, other than my free time, is dedicated to dog training. So um, so that's one of the downsides of, of uh, you know, doing your passion for, for a job. But in terms of books that I like, like I said, I got really obsessed with business books for a long time. I love Shoe Dog by, uh, oh, Phil ah, Knight, yeah. you know. Uh, Phil. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. about um, how he started Nike. Like, I've, I find that really inspirational um let me put, hang on two seconds sarah because i'll pull up my audible and then i'll see loads sure. of books where i'll be like let me let me do this real quick yeah i really liked shoe dog that was a great book because you see this massive company that is nike now and they're plastered everywhere and you have no idea how much of a struggle and fly by the seat of your pants experience that was until you read that yeah i'm so glad i, oh, I was yeah that's exactly how ahead. i felt as well you know it felt like 
like you see a big company like that and it just seems completely like alien and but then to untouchable yeah but then to hear how it started from these humble beginnings um is is really inspirational um but i you know one of my favorite authors actually is ryan holiday um he's he's got so many good books you know the i think i read his first book i read of his was perennial seller which is about um which is about creating something that lasts right like if you're writing a book you want to write a book that is going to be read in 30 40 years instead of a book that mm. is going to be forgotten about in six months um which i, I so i really I, I i love all of his work to be honest he i i start because i enjoy his books i started going back to his earlier books recently and i read a book he wrote called trust me i'm lying which is about media manipulation um mm-hmm. so it's about like how uh people manipulate the media to get stories into news articles that they uh that they like or that feed the narrative that they want and you know it was written quite a while ago but it's so relevant to today so relevant mm. you know i have to i have to look into that one you yeah. know like and even in my small experience with the press like i see what he's saying like where things don't get validated or like articles are written in a way which give an impression like a false impression you know like yeah people because i've been i've done quite a lot of press at this point and and like when uh when some journalists will write a, a negative news story like they do things like they'll write the negative news story and then at the end they say like oh we've reached out for comment but haven't heard back yet it's like that makes it yeah. that makes it sound like they're avoiding giving you comment but you actually haven't given them any opportunity like you can't yes. get inst- like you got to give us some like <laughs> you got to give us some time to respond um but it it paints that person in a negative light um or you, you know so i that's interesting. You know, I'll, from the media perspective, I have literally, and I don't know how people get my cell phone, but anyway, I'll, I'll be working with a client or doing something else and I'll listen to my messages maybe 15, 20 minutes later. And they're like, we're going to be publishing this story this evening on the six o'clock news. I'm like, it's 3.30 in the afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. yeah. And, and if you don't get on it and you don't all of a sudden make that your priority, then it's, oh, we couldn't reach her for comment or, oh, she had nothing to say about it that we could, you know, gather sure, however it is sure. that they word it. Yeah. That's a real problem. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that like really quick timeline, uh, that happens a lot with radio as well, where, um, uh, it, when you st- first start doing radio interviews, like, <laughs> they reach out to you like 10 minutes before they're going live they do it all the time yeah um yeah. you know i had one in i had one offer to go on the radio like someone emailed me at like half nine at night or something and i saw it and i was like well i'll respond to that tomorrow and then about being on a panel mm-hmm. about dog stuff and then i called them tomorrow the next morning and they were like oh no we've already done it that was last night it's like if you send me an email <laughs> late at night, I'm not get like I'm not going to respond to it straight away. Uh, but yeah, that stuff happens all the time anyway. Um, but you know, if you want to get more press for your business, you have to be really on it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. You have to be willing to kind of drop what you're doing to respond to them, or they move on right to the next thing. Yeah, you have to put yourself out there a lot as well. Um, one thing that I was taught by uh, a lady called Rachel Spencer who 
specializes in um, giving pet get getting pet businesses publicity was to look out on um, Twitter for the hashtag journal request or journal requests, um, which is where you can basically journalists will put uh, say I'm looking for a dog trainer to comment on uh, the rise in separation anxiety through COVID hashtag journal requests. And then mm-hmm. basically what they're looking for is for people to respond to them and say, hey, I'm a dog trainer. I can help you with that. Right. So they just put yeah. this open call out. And I know in America, um, Haro, help a report yes. out, is, is a much bigger thing, uh, I think, over in America. But it's kind of like a similar thing to that. Yeah, and you, you, um, Haro is great because there are so many people that are contributing to it, so many journalists that are contributing to it that you can literally come through, you know, see if you want to be a part of something or not. And the turnaround's pretty, pretty quick and easy. I've used that in the past. Um, the interestingly enough, though, I think, I think people need to decide too if they're really cut out for being in the public eye because it can be really nasty. It can be really ugly. I mean, people are just mean to be mean sometimes, and. Yeah. You know, as empathetic as dog trainers and behavior professionals are, I think that's something to consider as well. Like, can I handle this and still have um, good overall mental health for myself? You know, or, or am I providing enough of my own needs and filling my own cup to where I can, I can, you know, ignore those comments or delete them or block them or or not take it to heart? I think that's really difficult. So, deciding whether you actually are okay exposing yourself to the ugly that exists in the world as well because it's going to come is is something to consider too that's such a good point you know because uh, i've been making content for a while now so i kind of just brush it off a lot easier but a lot of people mm-hmm. you know get really upset with when they get these negative tom- comments on their um, content yeah. and as much as we can try to say to people hey don't let it affect you you know these people are trolls you know whatever obviously it does negatively affect some people and just what we were talking about mm-hmm. earlier sometimes is like if you if you say hey i just want to be a dog trainer i want to have a simple life like i've got respect for that totally get that like uh as much as i feel like as a community we do desperately need more content creators like always putting out positive yes. uh content um you know if if that's not for you i i you know you have to put your own mental health first and as someone that does put content out there i completely agree with you sarah i get like comments all the time which are just like mean-spirited um or like there's this weird thing because the content that we make is somewhat educational um people will like they're they're trying to like prove you wrong in a weird way or like Mm -hmm. show where you've made a mistake like I had a comment, um, I had a comment on some of my YouTube videos recently, which is like, at three minutes and eighteen seconds, you should have <laughs> rewarded the dog. And yes. it's like, it's like really, like that's the level of detail we're going into. Like this, like you know, when we make the the videos, when we're intending to make more of them, at the moment we only have a ser- one series, uh, which are of like two videos. Uh, resolving uh, reactivity with Saluki on YouTube. Uh, and that's just under my name, Nick Benger. But we want to make more content like that of like behavioral rehabilitation when we're able to. Obviously, COVID has kind of like made that difficult over the yeah. last year. But we want to get back to doing that. But when we do that, you have to understand that when you're watching like a 10 minute clip, that 10 minutes has been cut down from five hours, you know, and sometimes yeah. or four hours or three hours or whatever. Um, 
And sometimes even more so, like I had to cut, I wanted to put some more stuff on TikTok recently and um, TikTok has a one minute limit, right? So I'm showing, mm-hmm. you know, multiple hours of training in one minute. Like I'd rather not do that, but I have to do that because I'm constrained by the format. Um, yep. You know, and I even put that in the caption, but it's like, so if you see a missed reward, like really in the grand scheme of things, come on, like if oh, that's yeah. what you're picking. But people on, are always looking to judge. They're always looking for that slip up. I'm like, <laughs> wait a minute, we're humans, not robots. And, but I mean, my, my approach on that has been to, if, if it's something like that, that I don't miss or I glaze over or isn't important or it wasn't perfect, whatever. But if, if I know I've made a mistake. I try to get out in front of it. Like I, I released a video. I've gotten two comments about it, but um, I released a video of um, a trainer I want to give zero attention to, but uses a lot of positive punishment and has this thing that he does called bonking where he rolls up a towel and slams a dog sure. in the head with it. And so somebody shared that with me and I did a reaction video on it. And I don't typically, uh, your business is your business. How you train is how you train unless you're doing something very dangerous. And then I'll open my big fat mouth about it. Um, but in the... Um, in the reaction video, because I was watching it for the first time, I was so worked up that I was thinking about the dog's emotional state and I was thinking about the methodology that he was using and I combined the two. So instead of saying negative emotional state and positive punishment, I said negative punishment. And so I was like, you know, a little bit of a slip up. I'm not going to scrap the whole video. So instead I was like, you know what? I'm going to get it. I'm going to do the Eminem eight mile thing. I'm not going to be like, here's where I made a mistake. <laughs> this is what I said. So boom, <laughs> you know, that's like, so fun. That's such a great analogy, <laughs> but you have to be careful about that though. Like, you know, that's a good example of maybe when it's appropriate, but sometimes I see people that get so self-conscious about the content that they're putting up that they're like, oh, I'm sorry. I missed the reward of free 18. I'm I know that I should have uh, taken the two steps backward. Like, just, like, just don't worry so much, you know? Like, as I had, you know, I get comments all the time. Like, you know, I said, uh, I can't even remember what I said. Like, desensitization instead of habituation. It's like, do you know what? Mm. I don't give a, I don't give a shit, Sarah. It's like, (laughs) really, like, I can. Is that what we're focused on? Yeah. I don't care, you know, like. Firstly, to dog owners, it's all the same. And I'm not going to give them a, uh, a lesson on, on theory. And um, yeah, you're it's not just like a never... jargon. Yeah, yeah I'm, not, I'm not worried about it. As long as you're getting the overall message of what we're doing. Um, but also you'll get comments of things like, well, you should be using a collar and not a harness on that dog because the harness is going to encourage the dog to pull. And it's like, you know, we... I don't know. There's a level of like ego in it, which is like, you know, that we are professionals. Like we do this for a living. You know, um, we, uh, you know, for, for, talking for myself, I've got a degree in canine behavior and training. I think I know what piece of equipment yeah. I use. <laughs> right. Like, I think I'm okay with the decision that I've made here. <laughs> yeah. yeah education so to like, back it up. But thanks for your input. Like, you know, uh, um, but you, you are right, Sarah. I mean, I think the best approach, some, it's really easy to get annoyed about that. Where it's like, oh, for God's sake, like, really? But then uh, the best approach really is then I sh- then what I should do is go, okay, let's make a video about when it might be appropriate to use harnesses, when it, when it might be appropriate to use collars, what are the myths, what's the truth? Um, you know, really, that's an opportunity to educate. Uh, yeah. So I, I am aware of that. But sometimes it's easy to to get uh, annoyed. <laughs> but that, that's beautiful. It, it is. It can generate new content for you that you didn't even know you were going to produce in the first place. 
Yeah, well, you're really good at that. I saw that you, you know, you've, you've, you're killing it on YouTube. Oh, thanks. Yeah. It's just I, not an easy platform. No. And I started the channel because, um, you know, I was working with clients and I was like, I want to give you some examples of things to work on in between sessions, you know, so, so I would scrub YouTube and try to find things. And I just couldn't find exactly what I was looking for or how to align with kind of, you know, my belief system. And so I was like, oh, all right, we're just, we're, screw it. We're going to, we're going to make the videos that I want. We're going to do it this way so I can show them exactly what I'm talking about. And so it's kind of grown a lot from there, which is awesome. And then of course the podcast um, grew from there and kind of branched off from the the professional side of things. But um, yeah, it all started just because I wanted to have an additional resource that I could constantly utilize, um, you know, kind of like you were talking about evergreen content that you can use with your own clients to help them see other examples and see other dogs working through similar situations and, and actually be able to apply some of the things that I'm teaching when we are together. So all that supplemental instruction I felt was really important. Yeah, we're building that at the moment for our local business. For our classes, we're going to have video tutorials for everything that we teach because uh, I've had it in classes where people say, well, can we have like, can you send us notes? And it's like, yeah, I'd rather be able to send you a tutorial video. So that's what we're going to be. That's what we're, we're doing moving forwards. Um, but really, the content that I put online nowadays is, uh, well, or will be at least with the uh, with the YouTube strategy. What I really want to do is that I want to just show people we can address these really serious behavior issues positively without being yeah. horrible to our dogs. So that's my main focus on YouTube, although I'm I'm nowhere near as good at, as you, Sarah, about regularly posting, but I'm, I'm hopefully I'm gonna get there <laughs> soon. I get crap then... all the time for not posting <laughs> enough and I'm like, oh. <laughs> now I'll be yeah. very interested to see the content you guys are putting out because I agree. I, I Like I said, I think it's a, a tricky situation with clients that are okay with you filming. You know, mm -hmm. do they want you people, other people nationally seeing their home and their yard or where you're working or, you know, and there's sure. some guilt too. Like I've had a couple of clients that have been like, you know what, this would be a really good process to help people feel that they're not alone in what you're going through because um, what you're dealing with is something very difficult. And so if we film this process, we can show by example that, hey, there are solutions to this and we can help this. But that one particular family was kind of really ashamed of how their dog behaved and didn't want people knowing that their dog behaved that way. So there can be a lot of challenges in that. So I really look forward to seeing the content that you put out in regard to, especially here are some of the things that we can do in these specific situations that provide an alternative to mm -hmm. what you may think is the only option that you have. There's some really fun, positive ways to work through some really stressful, frustrating behaviors. Yeah, I mean, that's a discussion that has to be had up front, you know, when we do the filming. And thankfully, Sue, who was the owner of the Saluki, was really up for it. So that was great. But, uh, you know, and I think once you've got the one, once you start making the videos, like I've had quite a lot of clients come from the video where they like they've seen the video and they've been like, oh, wow, my dog's just like that. You know, can you help me? So um, sometimes it works out really well like that because you've almost got an inbuilt expectation where it's mm. like, you know, like, oh, yeah, sure. You can, yeah, I've seen your video. Yeah, you know, I'm happy with that. I know the kind of thing that you're making. So I think that it will get easier the more that we do. Um, but I think, like, maybe on the negative side of things is, like, I'm okay with me being criticized. Like, I'm really okay with that. But when yeah. you start criticizing the client, like, that's mm. not cool because, yeah, uh, like, you, you know, I'm putting this content up so that people can get educated on it and, uh, like they're very kindly letting us film. Yeah, there's you know? a vulnerability, sen a sense of vulnerability there too, not to be taken advantage of. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that's that's something that we have to be careful about. But um, I think overall, I would really love to see more people filming their uh, behavior cases. Um, but I know that, um, you know, there are some logistics that go into that and it's not always easy. And also, if you're not up for it, like you said, if you if you can't deal with the negative comments, then then fair enough. Yeah. Right. Fair enough. Well, and the, the, the other side of that, you know, talking about that wall and finding solutions um, and not hitting that no is that even maybe you can take the content or the methods that you're using and have someone else be the face of it or have someone else or even an alias, you know, be the the kind of presenter of that information or that content. So you can still get your content out there and still get what you're doing out there without having to be that face front and center that takes the brunt of, you know, uh, the negativity that can that can come yeah, that's a really good point, actually, Sarah. And, you know, I think that blogs and written content are really good for that. And I yeah. even follow one podcast in a different niche, which is like the person, is, the person's podcast is under a pseudonym. Right? So like, ah. it's his voice, but you don't know who he is. Yeah. So yeah, I uh, think that's great. Yeah. So, I mean, even a podcast under a pseudonym isn't off the, off the charts. I think there's an element of like mystery that actually makes that kind of appealing. Yeah. Right. I think so. Like, who is this? What is their experience? Where do they come from? Where do they live? You know, where in the world are they? That, yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. Like, that could make it more intriguing. Hey, maybe, maybe we could have like the masked dog trainer as a TV show. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you might be on something. Remember that twist we were talking about? Yeah. yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I'm no, liking where this is going. Yeah. There's, that's a, uh, old, like, cliche at this point isn't it? there's loads of music artists that that are masked and um yeah yeah no that's funny but uh yeah so yeah i hope that more people create content but i get it if you don't want to yeah but I it's really nice to it's so nice to show that it works like i just i think that like regardless of like whether you're doing parallel walking or bat or cat or look at me or like who cares right what what I really would like to just see is that uh, people can see that it's working. Like yeah. they can see that you don't have to be horrible to the dog. And also actually earlier in the podcast, you mentioned Sophia Yin and mm. Sophia Yin made one of my favorite YouTube videos on dog training ever about um, where she counter conditions this little Jack Russell. Um, Jonesy. So th- <laughs> oh, have you seen the video? I love Sophia. Yeah, she's wonderful. I've seen all of her stuff. Yeah. She put this video up of uh, this this Jack Russell that doesn't like its face being blown on. And uh, she shows the counter conditioning process using food. So a lot of people worry that if you use food, you're going to reward aggression. And she shows you that you you, you won't. Um, and uh, so you see this whole counter conditioning process happen in like three minutes. And I show so many clients that because when we are at the starting process, this idea of like, here's what we're going to do. We're going to start creating positive associations. And, you know, this might take several weeks or, or whatever. Like, it's very hard for people to visualize. And I just love that video as a way of showing people, hey, look, this is this is what we're trying to achieve. You know, yeah. I just find it to be a really good way of visualizing that for clients. 
That's a good one. I actually haven't used that one um, for clients. And, and I, I, that's a really good example. I'm going to start using that as well because it does. It gives a really good visual, um, especially in the methods that you're trying to utilize to change some things with counter conditioning. I've used, um, you know, her uh, lead like a leader in a dance and definitely her blogs on um, a handout, um, her learn to earn booklets like candy <laughs> to, to new dog people. But yeah, that's wow. a good point. Um, I'll start using that one as well. I think that is a really good representation. Yeah. Yeah, I, she would. She was really. She put. You know, she was someone that uh, put out some really great content, and you know, we owe a lot to those people that, you know, started. You know, they were there in the earlier the earlier days. You know, putting content out there. Yeah, I feel like she was one of those people that was really that fork in the road when it comes to training and behavior modification. Um, it, it, she she turned everything we knew kind of on its head. And said, wait a minute, let's try some alternatives. Let's think a little bit differently. Let's not stay in this same lane, you know, just because it's always been done this way doesn't mean this is the way to do it. And really kind of flip that. I feel like she was one of those, um, sh she was kind of that person that that divided that road and, and created that fork to where we started thinking differently. Now, obviously, there's been research going on, you know, for decades about relationships with canines and that sort of thing. But when it comes to what the public sees and what the public knows and what modern dog trainers are being taught and told. I feel like she was such a, a, a pinnacle um, for realizing that things can be done so differently. Yeah, definitely. It's so important for us to make that information accessible for people, you know, because a lot of what we do is scientific, you know, when we're talking about kind of behaviorism and, and all of this kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, what our job is to try to make that accessible. And that doesn't necessarily always mean teaching people like about operant conditioning per se, but just kind of making the information, making it do a, doable for people. And I think that anyone that's a crossover trainer, like I told you earlier about me using leash corrections when I was a youngster, like, you know, um, you, uh, you know, you have a different perspective on things a little bit because, you know, that was my first source of information was the negative stuff. And thankfully, I just start slowly, I started to come across better influences, right? Like, I mean, for me, I mean, it's a little bit uh, of a cliche again, but like, you know, don't Karen Price, don't shoot the dog was really pivotal, pivotal for me. And when I was starting out, um, but also like stuff like, you know, uh, Zach George, you know, as simple as like Zach George's videos, um, you know, Zach George has done a like, Zach George is an interesting one, because he's not really like, I don't. Like, there's a, you know, like you, you telling me that you're presenting at the APDT and there's like, there's like a, a dog trainers community, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like we're dog trainers, dog trainers know other dog trainers kind of thing. Uh, but Zach George is someone that kind of, uh, he does his own thing, um, but he's done so much positive for, for dog training. And there's, there's a few people like that, that kind of, they don't get involved in the, uh, in the, in the drama but they, no. uh, but they've done a lot for the community, and I've, I, you've got to give them a lot of respect for that. Even if you don't yeah. necessarily agree with everything they put out as well, you know, um, especially some of the older, like trainers from the previous generations, you know, some of the stuff that they put out it really does not hold up to, you know, modern dog training. But they were doing best with the the best with the information they had at the time, and they did push the ball forwards. Yeah, you know, yeah so. but it's unfortunate to see them get stuck there. I mean, you, you, it, 
it's it's biology. We're, we're dealing with living creatures and the information that we have and the advances that we make happen so fast. So if you're not paying attention, if you're not continuing edu- your education and trying different things outside of what you've always done, you're you're kind of back in the archaic of things. You're, you're kind of left in the dust a little bit. And, you know, there's something to be said about that. And I mean, I, <laughs> I just did a video recently because some some trainer in Florida found my content and decided that um, he didn't like it, so he wanted to comment on it. And I, I, I leave comments up, whether they're opposing or whether they're in favor, as long as they're polite. You know, if you're saying things about, you know, my family and, and you know, hate stuff, then that comes off. But otherwise, I like to keep other people's opinions up so other people can read them and converse and discuss and it's not one-sided. But I mean, some of it is so extreme with some of these older, old school, one-way trainers to where he was he was literally making the case that um, not using forceful techniques was dog abuse. Using food to reward your dog is nothing but bribery. And I'm like, yeah, it's just shaking my head. Like you probably started off with really good intentions. You probably started off with somewhat of an education, but where you stop learning is where you stop growing and you, you just get left behind in these old ways and these old methodologies that don't, you know, don't account for anything. And all these people well, are just kind of flying by with success and, you know, yeah. you're just kind of doing what yeah. you've always done. Yeah, I, I guess I'm not really talking about those people. I, I'm I'm talking about, uh, you know, uh, you know, there's some people in the positive dog training community that, you know, from some of those previous generations that, you know, they're not maybe so aware of the uh, more of the mod the way things have changed over the last kind of 15 years or so. Um, you know, for example, just husbandry training is a big one, like. You know, I've kind of had this discussion with people before. I remember having a conversation with someone that's really respected and they were like, nothing has changed in the dog training world. Like, basically, you know, everything is the same. You know, we're still talking about the same stuff. And it's like, well, what about husbandry training? I think husbandry training is one that's changed a lot. Because if you go back and watch some of the old videos, which were just pure counter conditioning, I'm going to grab the dog. And then I'm going to give them food. I'm going to make the dog. It's not even good counter condition. It's not even re- I mean, it's a push to call it counter conditioning, right? Like we you just, you're forcing the dog to do what you want, but it's okay because then I'm going to give him a treat. It's like, yeah, actually that's really not very efficient. You know, a, a more modern uh, husbandry training. And I know we keep bringing him up, but Shirak Patel has been great for that. You know, mm-hmm. showing people how to um, do uh, husbandry training in a way which the dog enjoys and they're part of the process you're not just forcing them into doing things and then giving them a reward as if that's going to mitigate everything you just did um yeah that cooperative care yeah so you know that's one area in which i think things have changed a lot and if if i see a video from 20 years ago and someone's doing it that way where they're grabbing the dog and then they're giving the dog a treat i kind of have a look a little i kind of go okay i I, you know, that was the be- that was what we thought was best practice at the time. I get it. But, um, you know, things have changed since then. Mm-hmm. You know, and, you know, I think things are still changing, but not necessarily in the principles so much. Um, you know, behaviorism has, I think that's kind of what a lot of people are getting at. It's like behaviorism hasn't really changed very much, but uh, methods have changed. Like dog training methods, like people are... Uh, you know, there's been an evolution in what people do. And also, um, also, I think that the dog training world more and more is starting to open up to other sciences beyond behaviorism, you know, where it's like now we're starting to hear from neuroscientists and, 
you know, all of these yes. different areas which have really valuable things to add. And I think it's great. And, you know, I've, obviously, I think the more that we learn about different ways of viewing behavior, the better. Uh, but our job as dog trainers that work with clients is always to try and take that information and like, like you were talking about, simplify it, make it easy for clients to understand. We don't need to talk about like areas of the brain with our client, right? <laughs> you know, right. <laughs> you know, we can, because uh, yeah, you know, there are, tra- going back to the clipboard trainers thing, there's people out there that they're just throwing out buzzwords because to try and look really qualified. And it's like, I think it comes from insecurity. It's like, you know, the most important thing is we get from A to A to Z, you know, with, with dog's behavior. Yeah, that's right. I agree. And, and a lot of the, the ways that you do that and the words that you use, the cues that you use and how you communicate with your clients, it's all subjective. And it really is, what are you doing that works to meet the goal of the client with the dog happily coming along as well for the ride kind of thing. So yeah, it's not, it's not nearly as important, you know, did you do this and did you check this box and did you use this communication method? And, you know, no, did we, did we actually solve the problem at hand? Did we set out on this journey with, this is our goal and were we able to meet that goal for the client and, and again, make it a, a good experience for the dog along the way too. Yeah. And what you were saying about, you know, people that don't believe in using food, you know, there I do every now and then come across people that call themselves dog trainers that um, that you know have beliefs which are just like they're indefensible. You know, um, believing that you shouldn't use food in dog training, um, st- like still believing in um, you know pack hierarchy and that it has an impact on pet dog training. You know, not letting dogs on sofas and eating before them and all this kind of stuff. Like, yep. You know, I'm sorry, but like at some point, like we have to say, you know, like you, you know, you're approaching. You know, if if this is your lack of care about educating yourself on the subject, you know, you're approaching scam artist territory by taking money from people because you you really have no understanding of what you're talking about, um, or or like you said, you're very very outdated and. You know, even if, if you do one course, like if you do one course on, you know, which is an outdated course and you learn about this, like, I don't know, maybe it's just, you know, the, the good dog trainers I know, they don't just do one course. You could be forgiven if you did one bad course and you were still talking about pack hierarchy and stuff. Right. You know, I, I that's forgivable. But when you've been in the game for a long time, like, what's your excuse? Like, why haven't you read a single book or... You know, why haven't you done any other courses? Because if it's it's unbelievable to me that you wouldn't come across information that conflicts with this, where it's like the absolute most basic elements of dog training. Yeah, it's not a mathematical equation that never changes. It's not the laws of physics, right? It's it's ever evolving because we're dealing with, you know, behavior is just what happens at that moment in a particular instance with a particular personality or dog, so to speak. And everything in the environment and in the dog's, you know, physiological states all impact that and can potentially change that. So why you would think that learning to train in certain ways or behavior modification is static, is, is set in stone, is, is um, just counterintuitive to me knowing that these are living creatures and that these, it's very 
um, dependent upon every situation, every everything in their environment and every way that they're developing, you know, from puppies all the way through adulthood and everything that happens to them, all of that plays a role in what's going to happen from a behavior perspective. So to think that there's just one set way and once we learn it, that's that, um, it's just, you know, you're, you're, you're leaving a lot to be desired and helping people help their dogs. Yeah, but I mean, you know, a lot of this stuff that we're talking about, you know, we're talking about pack hierarchies, not using food and stuff like that. You know, there was never any kind of scientific uh, support for that ever. You know, it'd be one thing if you said, um, you know, uh, dog training hasn't changed because the science of behaviorism is, you know, pretty much the same throughout, you know, and, and therefore you could make more of an argument like the laws of physics, like you were saying which I still think is wrong because I think that the creativity comes in the, in the way that it's applied. And obviously there are, you know, there are innovations in, you know, there's more science coming out all the time. Right. But, um, right. you know, it, that would be one thing, you know, I don't agree with it, but you'd be making one argument that at least is, is rooted in some kind of science at some point. But when you're talking about not using food and training and, and, a hierarchical approach well hierarchical approach maybe you can argue was rooted in science at one point but not using food in training like when has that ever been scientific right there's Mm -hmm. some people that are out there that just don't seem to have any scientific approach to things you know it's, it's pure hearsay yeah, and I don't think that you can have one without the other. I don't think that you can have a career in behavior and not um, understand that science plays a heavy role in that, that you can't separate those two things. Sure. Yeah, I've met some, like, I remember people talking about it. Well, I've spoken to a lot of people who talk about it as being, there are dog trainers out there that are fantastic at the practical elements of training dogs. And there are dog trainers out there that are fantastic at the theory of understanding how behavior works and the sad thing is there aren't a huge amount of dog trainers that are competent in both and um that's something our industry needs to get better at and i i actually think i don't know you i'm always conscious of the biases of what i experience especially as a podcast host i think because the people that i generally encounter uh have a lot of theoretical knowledge uh, mm-hmm. but maybe not a lot of practical knowledge. And I, like, so, I I mean, I think that that's some, I, I think that the positive training community tends to be much deeper rooted in the theoretical understanding. And sadly, because uh, I hate to give this to them, but I do think that uh, some of the, the balance community, especially those coming from bike sports, um, have a much better sense of the practical side of dog training and um you know as as people that believe in uh you know an ethical approach to dog training we really need to get better at that oh i agree yeah absolutely um yeah putting it into practice is something completely different and the more practiced you are at it the more you can provide that content and show other people how you're putting that into practice i definitely agree i think you see a lot more from balanced out there of them actually physically doing the work and and showing what that work looks like it's it's the difference between being book smart and experience smart right you you have to combine those two things it's not one way or the other you can academically read and understand every theory there is to learning and to um, and how to apply that 
but actually putting it into practice and utilizing that on a regular basis is what really changes the game for you. Yeah, you know, there's been a lot of conversation, you know, over the last few years about bridging the gap between balanced and positive training. And uh, this was a hot topic recently in the UK. And, um, you know, I think that, uh, you, know, you know, one of the, like, obviously, well, I think we need to keep ethics in dog training. But if you're a professional dog trainer, I think there's huge, huge amount of benefit to being open to learning from uh, some of the more uh, experienced members of the balanced community. Um, mm-hmm. You know, some of those, some of those really, ex- really, you know, I think that the like whatever you think about bite work sports, I do think that there's some really highly quali- highly people with really good practical experience in those sports and uh, we can learn a lot about motivation from those people a lot about uh training at a high level you know a lot about drive working with dogs that have a lot of drive or a lot of arousal um so i think if you're a, a professional dog trainer you can that's a really good avenue to explore i mean you just have to keep your head right and and like be able to filter you know good from bad information um if you're a if you're a dog owner i think it's different if you're a dog owner there's no point in digging that deep right Mm -hmm. like you're going to get way more benefit from just focusing on um uh finding really good positive dog training people and uh and learning the basics there yeah it's really on the way to the shoulders of the professionals to be that intermediate that intermediary rather and to have those different experiences and learn from other people and and i think you're right learning from other people that practice different methods can make a huge difference because you can take all of that information collectively and use it to make your own educated decision on on what you're going to do with that information but yeah you serve Mm -hmm. as that intermediary that most pet parents aren't interested in learning all of that different stuff they just want you to tell them what's going to work and show them how to do that so that they can they can make it work with their dog yeah yeah 100 percent. yeah you know and and yeah you're you, yeah i completely agree you know i've learned so much of uh you know learning to use dog toys properly really was a big game changer for me um because coming from a positive dog training learning standpoint you know we almost always use food or that was how mm-hmm. i was always taught with lots of food lots of food lots of food um and we very rarely use toys as reinforcers and you know i learned so much from uh, some of the balanced dog training community about toys as as reinforcement and and because i've done that like you said i'm able to pass that on to my clients um which is great because toys in themselves i mean playing with your dog you know is there anything better right like yeah. in terms of for your relationship uh you know, I, we were talking about earlier about uh, dog training is really just structured play, right? Like, you yeah, know, some exactly. of that stuff is, is so, so valuable. Well, and, and it is interesting you bring that up because before when I first moved more into the positive side of, of dog training techniques, it was just food. It was all food reward. Now, I had my play sessions, but my play sessions were always separate from the training sessions. And yeah, blending those things can have such an awesome impact on both your relationship with the dog, building an understanding of what you're looking for in the dog and just the dog having a a grand old time while learning at the same time. So it was it was fun to learn how to kind of weave in play with skill building at the same time or with shaping different behaviors at the same time to where, you know, you have a much better experience overall um, with the dog and really help build that relationship. Yeah. 
Yeah, a lot of people are worried about um, use. A lot of dog owners get worried about using these games, you know, to play with. You know, I, I hear it a lot um, where people are worried about encouraging their dog to play tug because they think that it might encourage aggressive behavior, you know, which is, is just, you know, it's just a myth, really. Um, when we play these games, with these, these games that we play with our dog, like tug of war, are a really good vehicle to teach skills that are really valuable for the dog for their, their life, really. It's something that we can use as a reward at any time. But also we can use it to teach our dog, you know, what to do when um, when I have something in my hand and I lift it out of reach, right? You're not, you can't jump up at me to get it. Um, it's something that I can use to teach my dog to let go of something when I have my hands on it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, can, I can teach them uh, what to do when they get really, really excited, right? Yeah. You know, I play this game with uh, young dogs quite a lot where... We start out playing tug of war and we start out calm and I take the toy away and then I'm waiting for the dog to sit. And as soon as they sit, then we start playing tug again. And each time, each kind of round, we're getting more and more excitement driven into it. And no matter how excited the dog has to keep the dog gets, what they have to learn is uh, when the toy comes away, they need to sit to reinitiate the game again. So it's it's kind of a, a way of teaching some uh, a level of self-control when you're really, really excited. Yeah, you I'm know, all uh, about impulse control. That's a great way to do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, that comes from you know uh, you probably found this as well, Sarah. But like, I think you learn the most from the clients or the uh, the dogs that you struggle the hardest with. Oh yeah. Yeah, you, you know, and. Um, so, you know, that came from working with a lot of young adolescent dogs that would hang off your arm at the <laughs> drop of a hat, you know, because they get just so overexcited so quickly. And, uh, you know, especially the high drive dogs and the working dogs. And, and unfortunately, I think more people are getting working dogs recently. Yes. And I think it's kind of, I'm, I'm guessing here, but... I think that there's a problem with with pedigree dogs, where it's like a lot of pedigree dogs are, are and show line dogs are really unhealthy, to be honest. So people get drawn towards the working line dogs, which are healthier, but they don't consider the fact that the working line dogs have a completely different temperament. You know, you have a dog that's bred to go all day. It's going to have a, a so much more energy and mm-hmm. so much more drive to do stuff. And it's going to require a lot more skill of you as a as a dog owner to be able to train them you know, and, and live with them. So well, the problem is they see what they're capable of, but they don't understand what it takes to mm-hmm. get to that level with a dog like sure. that. You know, you see the the awesome little duchy next to its handler, super sharp and super focused, and weaving in and weaving out and following all these cues, and like, oh yeah, I want that. That's what I want. Well, you don't get that by picking the type of dog. You get that from all the training you put into the dog. Yeah. So yeah, I think it's it's it, unfortunately that's that's uh. It's kind of the marketing thing. That's kind of what plays into people's desires. Oh, I see that and I want that. Are you willing to do what it takes to get that? Do you know what you're getting into? Yeah, breed research is so yeah, important. I mean, it, the, the most intelligent dogs are the hardest to live with because yes. they always learn the stuff you don't want them to learn, right? Yep. Like they learn how to get stuff out of the bin. They learn how to get your attention in ways that you don't want them to like the it sounds mean but like the dogs that are less intelligent and less you know bothered about that kind of stuff 
um, are far easier to live with. They're so much easier. <laughs> simple patterns. <laughs> oh, yeah. Easy, simple patterns. Well, yeah, it was, um, yeah. I, I think it was Kat Warren's book I was reading. I don't know if you're familiar with her. She's over here in, in North Carolina in the U.S. And she wrote a book called What the Dog Knows. And it was kind of her journey into getting into search and rescue. You know, she wanted to get a German yeah. Shepherd and she wanted to get into search and rescue. And she she does cadaver dogs now and training. But it was so funny reading her book about all these crazy things, these antics that her her new perfect puppy, you know, all these behaviors that, that this dog exhibited that just blew her away. She's like, this is not what it's supposed to be like. Well, what you think it's supposed to be like and what it actually is are two very different things. All of those behaviors that are driving you absolutely batty in the beginning are all the behaviors that you're going to use to really shape this amazing working search and rescue dog. So it was really interesting to, to read her kind of struggle through that process because she had no idea what she was getting into. She just said, oh, this is what I want. This is the end result. Um, and so she, she brings up the point that, oh, so you, you think you want a working dog. You think you want a, a search and rescue dog. Well, here's what to expect kind of thing and really opens other people's eyes to what you're really going to get and the kind of work that goes into it. Yeah. Puppies are way harder than people realize. You know, I get so many puppy owners uh, calling up really, really upset because they're struggling with their puppies that are biting them. They're not toilet trained. They're not sleeping through the night, you know, and they are, you know, very surprised at how difficult puppy ownership is. Uh, it's, it's really not easy. Well, and it can be stressful, too. At least I feel like I put stress on puppy owners when I say, listen, it's really important. Everything that you do and don't do right now during this critical period, you know, this is really important. I know it sucks right now, but just you got to get through it and you got to commit to it because it's going to make a huge difference in the long run. Yeah. You know, one thing I think that uh, dog trainers don't help themselves with is um, like, here's a here's a bit of a controversial topic, but like, like we need to stop pretending that we can stop puppies from biting because you can like it's a phase the puppy is going through like it's it's a i think it's like a, a biological phase the dog is going through there is no training technique other than i mean unless you there's no moral training technique let's put it that way <laughs> that uh, is going to stop the puppy from uh, biting all you can do is good management, you know, making sure the puppy's getting enough sleep, making sure that, uh, you know, you're using toys with the dog and um, and whatnot. And of course, there are training techniques that you can use. You can teach your dog to let go, you know, when you ask them to and all this kind of stuff. But the reality is that this is a phase that they're going to go through, you know. And um, sometimes I think that with certain problems like that, some well, with, with puppy buying, I, I do think that we are like, over promise you know where it's like oh you, yeah. you you can solve it by doing this you can solve, like you can you know you're, you're going no well, you mentioned the perfect word management you can manage it by doing these things sure. you can get through this phase sure. by you know providing adequate toys for them to chew on engaging with them with those toys yeah. and ignoring behaviors when teeth make contact with skin. yeah there's there's things you can do to manage it but you're right this is something that they're going to have to go yeah. through and every puppy's going to go through it there is no solving this quote-unquote problem sure yeah it's important for them to go through that <laughs> yeah yeah so uh yeah exactly and you know i i haven't done it but at one point i was going to make a course of, for puppy training called surviving puppyhood and i've not got around <laughs> to doing it or anything 
But there's a reason it's called surviving puppyhood because it can just feel like I'm just trying to get through this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I just need to put my head down. Oh. It's like a bad college course that you hate but is required. You're like, I just got to get through it. Yeah, and you will, you know. People will get through it. You know, we get people ringing us up, crying about uh, the puppy biting stuff. And, you know, uh, eventually, you know, sometimes by the time we get to doing the session, the dogs stop biting completely, you know, and it's... So it, sometimes it goes as quickly as it came. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, I better wrap this up, Sarah, because I I've, yes, I've I feel like I've taken your whole day. I just got distracted. And I very much enjoyed our conversation. <laughs> I think a lot of good came out of it, and there's quite a bit of value to unpack. So, so checklist yeah, on that one, mission accomplished. But and that was really good to connect. I really appreciate you know you having me on and having this opportunity to to just talk. Yeah, thanks for taking the time. I really enjoyed walking through some of these different topics with you and um, hopefully we'll connect again in the future. I will definitely put um, pretty much everything you mentioned as far as a resource in the link below. I'll put in there how people can get in touch with you and kind of following what you you are doing and what you're up to lately. Um, uh, Link to that YouTube channel for sure so we can see some more of those uh, positive ways to work with your dog, some alternative methods. And if you think of anything else that you think people would find value in, just shoot it my way and I'll be sure to include it in the show notes too. Yeah, so um, the YouTube channel will be great. And and the only other thing that uh, would be really cool for people to check out is the podcast, which is uh, Dog Talk with Nick Benger. You know, you can find on any of the podcast apps. Or if you if you struggle to find it for some strange reason, then you can find it on my website, which is just nickbenger.com. Well, I will put a link directly to the podcast too, so that'll be nice and easy for people to just follow right there and have instant access Yeah, that's to it. brilliant. And I appreciate you sharing all those resources as well because I do have a habit of just referencing lots of stuff. So that might be a long list. <laughs> oh, no, I love it. It's great. It, to me, it just gives me so much more to add to my reading pile and, and to expand my knowledge even more. So it's perfect. So yeah, thanks so much, Nick. Great having you. All right. Thanks for having me on. Take care. <laughs>